everybody, and welcome to a somewhat special, kind of a two-in-one episode of the Mountain Bike Podcast. Is that yeah, fair to say, It's Steve? a super episode. A super episode. I like that. Um, I, as you can tell, maybe from my voice still, I'm, uh, I've been under the weather for quite some time. Work's been nuts, and we haven't recorded. Uh, we did record one episode, and then I was editing it on Thanksgiving Day, and then had editing problems, so I didn't end up pushing it. And then it's just uh, the sickness has, has hit me, and I haven't gotten to it. Um, and you had to go anyways. do wind tunnel yeah recorded a trainer road podcast inside the special specialized wind tunnel yeah that was pretty cool man sweet that was did you get neat. to play with paper airplanes in the wind tunnel too oh no i should have asked to do that that would have been really be cool yeah uh no but they did turn it on to like 60 miles an hour that's yeah that's pretty sweet fun yeah yeah it's pretty cool yeah <laughs> nice um but it was it was awesome um but uh anyways uh what we're doing uh now though is just like a little bit of a preamble for people because two things have happened that I feel like we should talk about before we get to the episode that we recorded with Keegan Swenson yes. that has yet to be posted that you're about to hear after these couple conversations. That Absolutely. We'll uh, let's just jump right into it. Okay. The first thing is that Interbike is canceled. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is how I described it to somebody. Somebody called me up and asked me about it. And I said, I, on one hand, it's not a surprise at all. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it is a surprise. Okay. I don't know if you felt that way. I I actually heard about it from a friend who's in the industry last night and I was completely taken aback by it. Like okay. I did not expect it yeah. because I thought moving the show to Reno made it so much logistically easier and economical for everyone involved. Yeah, and I don't think it did. From all the dist- or from all the um exhibitors that I talked to, it was extremely expensive because the flights to Reno, they charged it up a lot compared to like direct flights to Vegas that people okay. could get. Um, in terms of the floor space and then not having to pay unions, they saved money there, which yeah. is good. Um, but then getting lodging and everything else was more expensive. It was, it was okay. harder well, to find. See, and that's what I, I thought it would be the opposite. I yeah. figured Reno would be cheaper all the way yeah. around to be here. So the reason why it was a surprise to me is that I'm a surpri- I was surprised that it already went away. I expected it to go away next year. Yeah. Um, the reason why it wasn't a surprise is because for five years now that I've been going to Interbike, mm-hmm. uh, the writing's been on the wall. That it's an, in my mind, a totally outdated model. True. Right. Um, uh, so, and, but before we get into that part, we should address because we're from Reno. Yeah. Um, uh, we and Reno is sure it's better, but you can't polish a turd, right? Uh, well, you can. It's just still a turd. Yeah. So, <laughs> and in this case, Interbike, you know, this is the polish that was going to be applied to Interbike. But to be honest, it was too little, too late. Oh, way too little, way too late. Yeah, absolutely. And and I feel like, um, uh, you know, and and it's funny on on Pink Bike. There's an article Mike Levy wrote about it, and he kind of like he pitched that Reno, you know, was was kind of like a reason in the beginning, and then Cam Zinc went nuts in the comments, and it was not good. And there are a lot of defensive people about Reno, but like, here's the deal: you and I know how nice Reno is because we live here. Yes, but. Put yourself in the shoes of a person that came to Interbike. Mm-hmm. They went to downtown and they got a casino in downtown, which first of all, you and I never go no. to downtown ever. Yeah. No one that lives we here. We go in the there. outskirts to some of the nice restaurants <laughs> yeah. outside of downtown, yeah. but that's Nobody it. Nobody touches it. So they went to downtown. Yeah. So that's your first impression. Yeah. Not great. Sorry, guys. <laughs> and then they drive down Virginia Street to the convention center, which is like a drive through just, you know, terrible row. It's not yeah, good. It's, it's not the best. No, not at all. Add on top of that, they were doing construction on that road. So then they filter yes. them through janky back streets, yeah. which is even better. <laughs> yeah. It's, so yeah. that's the impression they have. 
um, Reno is, is a place that for years marketed itself as like the little brother to Vegas. And I've never once heard anybody say that it's a good idea to market yourself as number two. Like yeah. <laughs> the world thinks that that's a good idea. Yeah. So terrible mistake. Um, and it's done a terrible job with reputation control over the years. You and I know it's gotten way better, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. It's really good outdoor recreation here. Yeah. Um, all that stuff. Sure. Whatever. But for the people that came for Interbike, they didn't get to see that. Honestly, no, they saw North star maybe. And then they just came down and they saw the Reno mess. Yeah. So it polarized it even further. Cause they saw like this great spot in the mountains and then this not so great city. Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, for everybody that's going crazy and trying to defend Reno in the comments, just stop. Like, like just accept Reno for what it is. It's, it's, it's got its shady parts. It's got its nice parts like anywhere else, but it's got a whole lot of bad reputation to come come against. And the downtown area sucks. Yeah. So like, uh, you know, own that and be okay with it instead of getting defensive. Cause it's crazy. Like there are a lot of insecure people about Reno on these I, comments. I need to read these comments, but yeah, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. Um, so back to the show really quick. So here's my opinion on why this isn't viable. So Eurobike has replaced Interbike, And the reason that it's done that is for two reasons. Number one, it's much more, um, it's, it's, I guess has a bigger global audience mm -hmm. in the sense that Interbike it was much more us focused. Yes. Uh, and then it also isn't just focused on dealers. It's actually focused on the industry coming together and sharing more things. Yeah. That said, they're still in a vulnerable position. Mm -hmm. Eurobike could very well be Interbike down the road. They also uh, undercut Interbike by being just before. So then they got the news beforehand. Yeah. But Sea Otter is undercutting Eurobike these days yeah. for that. And then even even if you want to go to a, a further extent, you know, the Taipei Bike Show, like that sure. everybody's undercutting everybody, really, yeah. if you think about it. I mean, it's just kind of a weird cycle that Yeah. Which kind of brings me to the main point is people don't really get their news the way they used to. Like, you know, a dealer doesn't have to go to Interbike to find out what new products are coming out. No. They will have either direct discussions or training with a brand. Uh, whether it's through a rep coming and visiting them or the the shop going to the company. Like a, like a brand camp or something yep. like that, yeah. Or uh, they learn it from the internet, just like us. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, consumers, they don't, and consumers have never gone to Interbike. Well, I mean, on, on a couple days, they do consumer days. But yeah. the point is to connect dealers with brands so then they can learn about product and place purchase orders and do all that stuff. Yeah. That's an antiquated model. Mm -hmm. uh, you're purchasing things nonstop now as a shop. You know, you're, you're constantly purchasing things. You're going through yeah. um, kind of keeping like just-in-time inventory in a lot of cases and kind of managing it like that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just an outdated model. It Interbike is. isn't relevant in mm -hmm. my mind. Absolutely. Um, and I feel like they've kind of recognized that. I don't know if, or if you read through, but they basically have said like, we're not going to be back next year and we're going to anal analyze and see if, you know, what'll happen moving forward. I don't think they'll be back. I don't think so either. I think that it's, it, I would say it's smart of them, you know, mm -hmm. coming from the automotive industry, you know, when I was in the racing industry and there was performance racing industry show, there was the SEMA show. Those even, you know, back in 2005, six, seven were in the same yeah. boat as Interbike is now, you know, they're still way bigger, but they're still, you know, showing signs of recession yeah. in that industry. It's antiquated. It is. It absolutely is. And I think that it's smart of Interbike to recognize that. Yeah. Shut it down. Right. Yeah. Um, and in my mind, like, you know, you're a consumer that's listening to this and most likely you may be a dealer or something else to your industry person. But if you're a consumer, you, you know, 
you find products on the internet, whether it's, you know, through articles that you read or people reviewing them on YouTube or people like us on the podcast talking about these things. Yeah. Uh, and then you, that's how you form a basic opinion. Then you try to educate yourself more online. Maybe you go to a dealer to check things out. Sure. Yeah. Um, but then in most cases, people buy things online. They can go to worldwide cyclery, right? Yeah. Um, it's just, it's a different model, man. It's, it's tricky. Yeah. Uh, the other news item, uh, this one is a big shock for the mountain bike world. Uh, Richie Rude and Jerry Graves, they failed drug tests. They got non-negatives. Uh, yeah, yes, I should say <laughs> adverse analytical findings. Um, that's how we find it, right? So uh, here's the deal. They're racing EWS. <laughs> now, but before we start, you Please. and I have not discussed this at all. We haven't at all. You actually. and I kind of have started formulating our own opinions and understanding of understandings of this, but we have not talked about this. Yeah. Can I lay out um, kind of like uh, what we know from the article? Laid out. And then uh, you go into your opinion. Okay. And then we'll go from there. Okay. Cool. Okay. Um, so basically like the, the racing EWS, which is as of now and as of this drug test, not UCI sanctioned. Okay. So as a result, WADA is not doing any sort of testing because UCI and WADA have an agreement where WADA carries out the drug testing. However, that also, uh, whenever you race in a foreign country, depending on the different laws of the race, organi or race organizations or rules that are in place, you can be tested by an independent agency that aligns with that specific country. Okay. So in this case, they were tested by the French Anti-Doping Agency as well, okay. or AFLD, if you are to use the French acronym. So in this case, like if, if any of you go over to race in a different country, you could be drug tested. And in some countries, there are actual laws where even if you're an and you're caught doping, then you can go to jail even. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's pretty severe. It's not like here in the States where like, you know, it's, it's, it's a very different deal where you deal with fines and suspensions, yeah. you know, it's jail time in some of these countries. So, um, the, these, this is the agency that tested these two riders, but they tested a whole group of riders and these two returned adverse analytical findings. It seems uncertain as to whether the other racers have also had their results released mm -hmm. or if they're ever going to make that public. Yeah. Which is interesting. Because there's the four unknowns at this point, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we don't know if those other riders also had anything else like that. Um, but those two did re return an adverse analytical finding. Um, the, what the, the substances, substances that were in their si system, uh, the first one was hygienamine and the second is oxyliferine. So hygienamine is used to treat asthma. It's a beta two agonist and it's banned in and out of competition by WADA. Okay. okay. I can only assume that the French anti-doping agency holds up that same standard of having it being banned in and out of competition, but I don't know for sure. Okay. Um, so this is in, in essence, this is kind of like a steroid relaxes the muscles that controls the airways, uh, letting the lungs take in more oxygen and then it boosts performance. So, um, you'll also see hygienamine included in like pre-workout mm -hmm. as a fat burner or as like just a fat burning supplement. Yeah. So, um, it's common to see in there mm -hmm. now, oxyliferine is an amphetamine. Uh, so think that this isn't the same and I'm sure there's a doctor listening that will get upset at this or some sort of, you know, pharmacist or something like that. But, um, think of something, another stimulant that's an amphetamine like that. You're talking about Adderall, something like that. Yeah. And if you follow motocross, you know, that James Stewart was caught with Adderall and plenty of other athletes have been. Um, it heightens focus and alertness, um, reduces reaction time. It increases your body's response to adrenaline. Sounds all like really good stuff that yeah. you would want. It's this, <laughs> right? the, yeah, this is more like a really hopped up mm -hmm. Adderall. Right. Exactly. I mean, if we're going to just speak generally. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, so both of those are specified substances, meaning that they 
are they're a less potent substance than other alternatives. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have any amount of them in your system, then you are then you it shows up as an adverse analytical finding. Yes. Now, in this case, I saw somewhere where it was written that it was trace amounts. Yes. We don't know what that actually means. Yeah. And I don't know if that's an, you know, that's just a rider projecting something that may not be truth or that is indeed the case that it was trace amounts. Who knows? Yeah. Um, it's not like with Chris Froome where we know that he took like 22 puffs of an inhaler worth of, of what he had in his system, right? Yeah. So that's a totally different deal there. Um, but in this case, so that's what they were caught for. Now, here's the interesting thing. And here's how doping, um, I guess, uh, how this whole process usually works. So you take a test, you have an adverse analytical finding from a sample A. Mm-hmm. And then in most cases, what athletes will do is they'll request a sample B to be tested yeah. because they take two different samples and hold them in isolation from each other. Mm-hmm. So that way, if one becomes contaminated, you have a second backup, yeah. right? So in most cases, they request that a, that a B sample be tested. But in this case, the athletes didn't do that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get to that in a bit. But that's kind of an interesting point. Um, and, and then let's say that your sample B comes back also positive. So in that case, you have an adverse analytical finding. And then at that point, it's just really what's the punishment going to be? Yes. Now, the punishment is always suggested, mm-hmm. or I should say is usually suggested from the anti-doping authority. Okay. And then the sanctioning body upholds that. So in the UCI would be the one that upholds it. Or ASO for Tour de France, for example. Um, they, they sometimes get involved with this. Uh, or in this case, EWS would mm-hmm. be the one that decides if they uphold the suggested sentence for these athletes. Yeah. So it's interesting because the anti-doping agency does not ban the athlete. They suggest a punishment, and then the sanctioning body is the one that enforces that or chooses not to enforce it. Got it. Now, I don't see how EWS wouldn't enforce this because— They're the ones who wanted this. And it would look really bad. Yes. Right? If they have two athletes, they have something in their system, and then they say, no, it's okay, we'll turn a blind eye to it. Yeah. They can't do that. Yeah. They have to do something. Now, in some cases, I can only think of really— a couple cases where a doping sentence has been suggested and then it is not upheld. Yeah. And that is like Operacion Puerto, the really famous one where everything's the house of cards started tumbling in the road world. Mm-hmm. And that's where almost the entire Peloton was all incriminated. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like everyone was dirty. They have all these interviews and they say, We have we have dirt on all of you. Mm-hmm. Like, and we have tests and we have your blood bags and we have all this stuff. You're all dirty. Mm-hmm. And they basically said, we're going to do a plea. So you guys rat out whoever is really at the top of this thing. Mm -hmm. And then if you do that, we'll lessen your sentence. Okay. And that's what they ended up doing. And their sentences were adjusted. Got it. So, and in that case, you saw like a bunch of riders where it was like, because road world champs usually is in like September, October, Mm -hmm. and they had six month bans. So then like they couldn't ride until, you know, what, March, something like that. So big whoop, that's when the season starts anyway for most of them, right? Mm -hmm. So they served their sentence while they were in the off season. (laughs) So it was very convenient for them. Basically, they made it so that it wasn't going to affect it. So I'm curious to see how this is, uh, how this ends up shaking out. And I think that it would be, before we go into to your opinion on this, we'd be remiss for not mentioning the fact that Jared Graves, of course, is going through um, treatment for brain cancer right now. He is now. Now. Yes. Then not before. Yeah. Um, not when this drug test. Yeah, I'm sure that out. he probably had a tumor present. Well, of course, point. he just didn't know. that He started exactly. having the seizures like two months after right. this test. So um, at least to our knowledge. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Jerry Graves is going through treatment like with for that right now. Yeah. And I believe that has impacted the social reaction in a positive way. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But what's your thought process on this? Like the road world kind of assembles pitchforks and stabs. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I just kind of want to know what you, where you stand on this. What do you feel like? With what little information we have, mm-hmm. the trace amounts, both of them not going for the B sample backup mm-hmm. testing, admitting outright that, okay, the, these are the findings, we'll accept this. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to believe that this is a, that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. UCI and water regulations clearly state that they have to be they're responsible for everything that goes into their bodies. Yeah. So were they negligent and just stupid about this? Yeah. Did they not know what they were ingesting or do they know what they were ingesting? And you know, I don't know. There's not enough information out. So I want to believe both of them. Um, but it just looks really suspicious. Yeah. And to that point, no matter what, and this is a bummer, but no matter what, going forward, there will always be an asterisk by their performances. Absolutely. Because the way that this works is in our minds, we already, there will always be a question mark. Yeah. Whether it's justified or not. So mm-hmm. like you said, let's say it's negligence. Because I <clears throat> I tend to believe that it's negligence. Yeah. And I say this just because, so I've met both of those riders before, but I don't know them personally. Mm-hmm. And and I don't, and, and any sort of Yeti connection, it doesn't exist there. Yeah. Right. Um, I've only ridden a chairlift a couple times with Richie Root and Northstar. That's it, right? And you guys were doing EPOs the whole time, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <I'm> kidding. <laughs> Swapping blood bags on the lift. It was, <laughs> but, um, but like, you know, I don't know him. Uh, I don't know him, right? No. Uh, there are certain athletes that I know that have doped mm-hmm. um, and been caught for it. And I'm thinking of master's athletes. Um, I also know professional road cyclists that have been caught and for doping and everything else. There's a certain personality in most of them or a trait that's consistent. And it's a person that is like shaving every single gram of effort or anything that they can to, to be more efficient, right? Like it's like, they're willing to do whatever they're analyzing everything. They're breaking everything down. They're like, you know, in, in a sense, like, I almost think like in the enduro side of things, I think of like a Jerome Clements, he's like a scientist almost like mm-hmm. he, he's very, he's like a surgeon with how he rides and how he approaches like Fabian Burrell. Like, yes, they're always looking for these marginal gains. You know what I mean? They're really like really focused on that. Yeah. I do not get that vibe with Richie Rude. No, <laughs> I don't. And, and I'm not saying that he's just like a, a, a simpleton. He's no. not, but he's, he's not a rider. And I, and, and I'm sure that he works plenty hard at trying to scrape as much as he can in terms of performance, Yeah. but he doesn't seem like the sort of rider and, and he could be, totally be fooling us all who knows, but he does not seem like the type of rider that would be taking these sort of risks. And, and be, you know, knowingly going through that whole process. Yeah. It doesn't add up to me. These guys seem like the guys that would take the risk of in the EWS world. Well, there's no tape there. So therefore we can take that, you know, that <laughs> yeah. cheater line. Right. That's the type of guy that I see all of right. these guys being not the type of guy that's going to go and risk their career yeah. over, you know, doping. Yoan Borelli put out a post where he said there are a bunch of dopers in EWS, but these two guys aren't them. Yeah. And, and that's like purely conjecture. And that's kind of like a risky move for him to do. Yeah. I don't think that that was very smart. No, because then um, now people are going to say, who are the dopers then? Yeah, exactly. And then it's also slander. Uh, yeah. So like, you know, he could be liable for that. Like that could be really bad. So, um, but anyways, uh, so who knows if they are clean or not? I want to think that it's negligence. Now, some people have inferred that there's a connection with Rhino Power supplements. But Rhino Power immediately replied and said no. And here's where I'm going to completely say that that is a big red flag. 
Okay. So he said that there is no way that those supplements or those those uh, substances could be found in their supplements. And that, I'm sorry, is absolutely incorrect. That's true because they're not – they're just yep. thinking out loud here. Rhino Power probably does not manufacture that stuff in-house under controlled situations. Yep. They have a third party that mm-hmm. does it, a third party that probably also makes, you know, yes. pre-workouts and other, uh, you know, different – uh, supplements that do have this in it. Yes. And who knows? Somebody could have been having a Monday morning and dumped yes. this stuff into a batch of Rhino Power. You yes. never know. And they use the same assembly lines and the same hoppers and the same everything else. And yeah. they'll they'll be making protein powder now, then they'll be making pre-workout the next. Yeah. So you never know yes. unless you actually go through and every single batch ID you have to test in-house. And I doubt, I highly doubt Rhino Power is doing that. Right. I could be wrong. I could right. be very wrong. It's extremely expensive for them to do that. Exactly. You can and get your supplements all certified, mm-hmm. it it completely yanks the margin out from underneath you. Exactly. It's extremely expensive. And even then, a lot of the time what it ends up resulting in from what I hear, and I've just read up on this, I don't know anybody that actually, you know, makes these supplements, but they end up with a lot of loss because they have a lot of product that is tainted. Yeah. It's cross-contaminated. Absolutely. It's very common. Mm-hmm. And and I'm almost positive that Rhino Power doesn't own. So Rhino Power would need to have like full vertical integrations. So they would need to have like, they would need to probably not at the farm level, but they would basically need to get all the ingredients from a unique source, supplier. Sort all source all their raw materials. And then they would have to have take the raw materials, mm-hmm. have their own distribution channels for mm-hmm. them to get it there. So then they don't have another one that's mixing powders. Yeah. And then they would have to go to their factory. And nobody builds a factory just to build their own stuff these days. No. Like I th- I think um maybe Cliff Bar does at this point, but even then I think they actually share. So um anyways, it's it's like nobody just has their own. It's a huge expense. And if you're going to do that and just make your own product, you better be selling it to everyone in the world to be able to make it worth it. And otherwise, you're going to look at it anytime that you have a factory and it's downtime, it's losing money. So yep. you want to be pushing stuff through. So they'd have to have their own facility and then they would have to have their own packaging and then they'd have to have their own distribution there thereafter to the to a dealer or to anything else. Yeah. Think about it from I don't like, believe they have that. Yeah, think about it from but a could food standpoint. You look at any sort of, of products. Um, any sort of food product, just go with, um, just say nature's bakery fig bars yeah. or whatever. They third-party manufacture for other companies too. Totally. They used to make a lot of, of cliff bar stuff Yeah, right here in Reno. Yep. And you see the warnings on labels of many, many different foods. They contain peanuts. Say, yeah. Or something this, like that. yeah. This is a, you know, this was made in a facility that also manufactures tree nuts or peanuts or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And the product you have may not have any of that in it. But there might be trace amounts because of cross-contamination. Yeah, it happens. So when Rhino Power comes out and says something like that. It's really bold. I go, whoa, red flag. Yeah, you don't That makes me think that you don't understand what's going on here. Yeah. Right? Um, So as a supplement company, I would have really looked into that and really done some work. It seemed like the athletes haven't dug into that. (laughs) That's very strange to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I would think that they would want to look into that more. I've heard, this is only an insinuation, I can't say, but I've also heard that uh, doping offense in the motocross world was also tied in to Rhino Power. I'm having a trace amount of something in there, yeah, uh, but I don't know. Um, that's that's purely conjecture and hearsay. Yeah. So um, I, I just, I feel like uh, I want to believe that this is negligence. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, the special guest that's coming up, Keegan Swenson, this broke out when he was staying at our house. Yeah. And we talked all about it. And I've known Keegan for some time. And I see the lengths that he goes to mm-hmm. to make sure he's clean. 
And holy cow, your life is altered. Mm -hmm. So like, first of all, the whereabouts program that they're going to have to do starting January 1, I think, because they'll be a part of a UCI sanctioned series at that point. Yeah. The whereabouts program. For those that don't know, athletes that are um, eligible for testing and this sort of stuff, professional athletes, you can get you get put on some sort of a list where you are basically like a, a likely candidate for testing. Okay. And that's out of competition testing as well as in competition. Okay. So uh, when you're on this list, you have to update your whereabouts. And I mean that literally. If Keegan says that oh, if he has to go to the store, he should note that down. Yeah. Because if they show up at his door and they can show up at any point and he's not there, it shows up as a missed test or it can show up as a missed test. Wow. So that, and if you miss, I think it's like three tests, then it's, it's, then you have a ban. But if you miss a test, it seems like you dodge a test. Yeah. So then this like guilty until proven innocent thing where you have that asterisk by every performance, it's already there if yeah. you miss a test. Yeah. Um, Lizzie Dignan was a road cyclist that had this. She missed a, a few tests in a year, I think. Mm -hmm. And everyone was like, okay, yeah, I don't trust any of your performances at this point. So it's, it's really, um, like these athletes are going to have to really change how they live their lives. Yeah. Um, they're going to have to look at everything. I notice how Keegan eats. He doesn't just grab things off the shelf or anything else like that. It's whole foods and it's stuff that he prepares and he's very focused on making sure that he isn't taking in things that are bad. He isn't taking a bunch of supplements. He doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. Right. He like stays very focused and clean on all of this stuff. Yeah. It's a lifestyle change. And up until this point, nobody had been tested. So you can't blame a lot of UWS guys for thinking that it was inconsequential. Yeah. But the fact is they should have known that even though they weren't held to UCI and WADA standards, they were going to be held to the sanctioning body standards of on the, of the anti-doping agency or the anti-doping agency standards of any country they raced in. Yes. So um, at this point, the world kind of treats it as like a guilty till proven innocent. But I, I want to say kudos to the mountain bike world, because if this happened in the road side of things, like two of the most dominant side, or I shouldn't say two of the most dominant, but two premier and very famous, uh, you know, members of, or members of your industry like this are caught. They'd already be burned to the ground. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah. It would be terrible now. Yeah. And it is. And it, you don't see that really with the mountain bike one as much. Uh, it, not as much, but I've definitely seen, um, since this came out, if you look at Richie rude, mm -hmm. you know, just on his Instagram alone, people just taking shots at him. Yeah. You know, oh, did you take your, you know, did you do your doping or did you take your EPOs before you went on this ride today? Like, yeah. And so there's a little bit of that, but nothing. It's like not what like you'd see in the road world. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that a lot of that probably has to do with Jared Graves situation. Yeah. Um, That's the thing is you don't see a lot of it with Jared, right. which is sad. And you know, the reason is, is because obviously he's, he's fighting cancer, cancer right? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, he's, he's, He's fighting the fine line of mortality. Of course. And you know what's cool about this is it's making people remember that he's a person. And like, <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but that's why you're treating him better. Yeah. But also remember and that Richie Rude's a person too. He, this like, is how we should treat everybody. Absolutely. You yeah. Know? Um, uh, so, uh, you know, there's some, it's a, it's a tough thing that Jerry Graves has to deal with alone, let alone this doping offense getting added on top of it. It's the last thing that he needs. Yeah. Um, but in one respect, I'm grateful that that's the current situation Yeah. because what he has right now is he's put things into perspective for people perhaps. Of course. So, uh, that's really cool. So I think that that's something that's, um, uh, good on you mountain bikers for not reacting quite to that degree for yeah. saying like, Hey, maybe this is an honest mistake. I feel like that's a really good thing for us to, for us to, to kind of recognize. And, 
and we'll wait and we'll see what happens. Um, hopefully these athletes aren't banned for too long, but I assume that a ban is coming. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, you know, Jared already even said, he's like, Hey, I'm in the twilight of my career anyway. Right. So this is kind of inconsequential, but you still don't want that asterisk by your name, you know, in your career. Right. And for Richie, um, they did say that he might consider racing downhill, um, in the interim if he's banned. Yeah. Uh, I think that's because if he had a doping offense with it's, another agency, yeah, I think that, I don't know, it, that's kind of some weird ground to me. Yeah. He wasn't banned within UCI necessarily, right. Right. but he'll be banned within EWS. The thing is, if the UCI upholds the findings of that agency, that French agency, then they should still maintain the ban, you would think. You would think, but also at the same time, apparently not. Yeah, it's so. very interesting, man. Yeah. And speaking yeah. of another just yeah. side subject, yeah. um, did you see Jared Graves' new puppy? No. Cookie the Dalmatian. Cookie the Dalmatian? She's Aww. freaking cute. She or he. I don't remember if it's a boy or girl, but oh my God, very cute. <laughs> and you adopted a new pupper too. I did. Um, her name is Maggie Mae. Um, <laughs> she's a little, she's a staffy. I don't know exactly what she is. So she's either an American Staffordshire Terrier or American Pitbull Terrier. One of the bully She's breeds. white and spotty. She's That's white with black spots. She looks like a little baby cow. Um, she's adorable. And uh, I rescued her from San Jose, California. She was due for euthanasia for a skin infection, and they didn't really want to adopt her out. They just wanted to put her down, and she was too adorable. So I put a hold on her, went and visited her last weekend, did some assessment work with her, found out that she's not dog aggressive. She's not people aggressive. She loves people. She loves dogs. She mm. wants just to be loved. And so I had to bring her home. So I've got a little 50 pound, um, annoying little sister for moose now. <laughs> so you can check Good. her out on my Instagram. She's very adorable. That's dogs, bikes, and, dogs, bikes, and cars. Yes. Is your Instagram. Yeah. Can check out the puppers there. You're a yeah. good man, Steve. Thank you. I think a lot of people listening to this probably like pups and like uh, trail dogs and everything else. So good man for, for bringing that one in. And she's fast and has lots of energy. So I think she's going to be a way better trail dog than moose. <laughs> so with that, we should probably just feed you right in, man. You're getting a lot this week. Um, uh, it, we're making up for it though. We've been absent. So yeah, I will just feed you right into the podcast with Keegan Swenson. Does that sound good, Steve? Have a nice podcast. Indeed. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 67 of the Mountain Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Lee with my co-host, Stephen Lewis. Hi. And a, another guest with us today, uh, but kind of a host in this in this case, I guess. Getting there. Yeah. Keegan Swenson. How's it going, man? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing good. great. Uh, Keegan Swenson, you ride for the Stan's Pivot team. Uh, Stan, that Stan's No Tube Pivot, uh, sponsored by Maxis as well. Mm-hmm. Asos. Stages, other companies that I'm probably forgetting. Yeah, Yeah, Pivot for sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, One of the best cross country racers in the country, uh, if not the best. You won the recent race. It was Bentonville, uh, the Oz Trails off road in Bentonville, Arkansas. Yeah, thanks. Heck yeah. So uh, we did a podcast directly on that. And we'll, we'll jump into more details on the podcast here. Just a quick diversion. We did a podcast where it was like a documentary style episode on that. So if you're just listening or just discovering the podcast, you should go back and listen to that. I'm going to kind of give you a feel for like what it's like. And if you listen the whole time during that podcast, you'll hear like rustling. That's not leaves. What that is is crushed limestone underneath my tires. And I had double down casing uh, mm-hmm. or actually DH casing in the rear. Okay. And then I had double down up front. Uh, so really, really gnarly tires. I didn't experience any flats, but that rustling that you hear was the exact cause of the demise of almost all of the people in that race. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like insane flat tires, right? Yeah. Why do you think we've talked about this? Um, why do you think that happened? I think so when you guys rode it and when I pre-rode, it was dry. Um, this is my theory anyway. Yeah, so yeah. And all those loose, all me. these loose small rocks get like pushed off the side and you just like, you know, you go into a corner and they just get blown away. 
Yeah. Um, and I think it rained a fair bit. And I think what was happening is those rocks were getting turned up and then sticking into the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'd hit them and you'd flat. And then there's also, I mean, then you're racing and you're going faster and you're paying less attention. And so I think there's a lot of factors that cause that. But I, I do think the softer soil and the rocks are actually sticking. Yeah. I've had something to do with it. I feel like once they got ridden over with that soft dirt, like you said, they kind of just like got, it's like razor blades getting tipped on their edge. Yeah. They're all like arrowheads. Yeah. Super sharp. Yeah. It's kind of crazy, man. Uh, everyone was getting flat. So, uh, anyways, good to have you here. We will talk about tires later too, um, for people, but, uh, this is the mountain bike podcast presented by worldwide cyclery. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anybody needs mountain bike parts or knowledge or anything else like that, they can go there. They're pretty awesome dudes. Very. Uh, they actually recently were in the path of a fire. They Thank were goodness yeah. that the HQ didn't burn. Um, it seems like all their local trails burned, uh, which is unfortunate, but, um, anyways, uh, they're, they're awesome. You can go check out. They've recently been posting a bunch of different videos. Uh, I know that they're t- testing the trust performance fork right now. And we know that Jeff really knows how to ride a bike. He's yes. incredibly good on yeah. a bike and a bunch of the other employees there are really good. So they're all going to be testing that fork to kind of get their opinions on it. And we're really curious to hear it. And they have one as a demo. They do. We actually, actually have both locations. I think, yeah, we haven't, we should probably reach out to them. Just send it to us guys. Yeah. Just make I, it should, I should do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I could probably work some connection on that, but anyways, uh, if you're listening, uh, anybody from trust, uh, trust performance, what I believe mean, if they're listening, yeah, of course they are all of them. Uh, yeah. Uh, we'll be in touch soon. We'd like to test that fork and demo it. Um, but in the meantime, stay tuned. Cause I bet the guys at worldwide cycler are going to be posting something soon on it. So you can check that out. If you want to get parts for your bikes, that's where you should get them. But you go through mtbpodcast.com, go to our store, click the banner. It'll take you there. Uh, we get a little cut of that and then that allows us to basically continue creating content. So it's a good setup. Uh, this is going to be a different episode. We're going to have a deep dive. We haven't done a deep dive in a while. We haven't. Yeah. So we're going to do a deep dive. Uh, but first things first, we need to get into some news. Well, first, can I do one little diversion? Please. Shallow dive. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Friends of the podcast dogs. Okay. Who has the coolest dog? Oh, Keegan with Wally. Oh, Emily Batty. And Buddy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, who else? Oh, Sonia Looney and Baxter. Oh, yeah, Baxter's pretty Out adorable. of those three, which one? They're very different. They're very different Wally, animals. Wally's at our house right now. He's playing tug-of-war with your son last night. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that was cool. Yeah. In, in a frog leg position. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Try and drag me. Yeah. It's pretty hilarious, man. All right. Well, we'll get back to that. Yeah, we'll yeah. get back to that. Oh, actually, and before we get into the news, maybe this is a news item, but... Uh, I think that we talked about the fact that Yolanda is a committed woman now. We did, yeah. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Lucas Shaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still very upset. Thanks for bringing it up again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing it at the behest of a listener. He asked me to say how, he asked me to ask Stephen how he feels about Lucas Shaw in general these days. Um, (laughs) A little bitter, I feel. Well, I mean, a little bitter, but do I feel that about Luca directly or do I feel about his transgressions (laughs) towards (laughs) my intentions? Yes. I I don't know. I I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. It's complex. We'll give you time to think about that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There you go. There you go, listener. I'm not sure, actually. (laughs) Just a rando. Excellent. Uh, What's his address? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Thanks, listener. Uh, We appreciate you sending things in. Uh, Okay. uh, Let's get into the news. Sounds good. All right. First bit of news is actually, it hits pretty well for us here um, in Reno, Nevada, where we are from, where we are at right now in Trainer Road HQ. Thank you, Trainer Road, for letting us use the recording studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fox is going to be moving their, or moving their HQ to Georgia. 
Yes. But then they're going to be moving, it sounds like their main service center to Reno, Nevada. Yes, service and... They're doing something else up here. It's going to be service and I forget what else it is, but um, I was talking to them the other day, um, one of their marketing guys, but um, yeah, that's going to be good. It's going to be really good. It's going to get more industry people up here in Reno to see like our trails and ride with us. And mm-hmm. I think it'll be good. So here's why it's interesting for people that don't live in Reno, right? So like two things in my mind. Number one, another bike company leaves California. So like uh, Pivots in Arizona, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is an affordable state to be in as a business. Um, Nevada is an affordable state to be in as a business. Georgia is another affordable state to be in as a business. Colorado's pretty good. Uh, but California simply is not like it's expensive to live there individually and it's, it's expensive to have a business there. Um, so like, it's kind of interesting to see them moving away from California because so much of like the mountain bike culture is very like that stereotypical California mountain bike bro. Right. Um, but to see them moving away from it, I actually think is Good. Well, it's very good. I, I think that this one's probably motivated more by the motorsport side of things than the bike side of things. It sounds like when well, you read between the lines. I think motorsports is sure. staying in Temecula. I think they're staying down in SoCal. They're not they're not moving. Bike operations is moving the service center and aftermarket sales. And I think the aftermarket sales part of it is because of Nevada's lack of inventory tax. Huh. So they're not gonna have to pay tax on inventory that's sitting in their warehouse. Whereas in California right now, it just costs them to have a fork sitting on the shelf. Yeah. So we have tariffs going in place on bike parts, which will make things more expensive yeah. for customers, right? Mm-hmm. But then we have brands that are moving away from places that have higher taxes. Yeah. Uh, whether the company chooses to pass that on to the co- to the consumer in terms of keeping prices low despite tariffs, if they're facing anything like that, uh, we'll see. Yeah. But at the very least, this is good news for us because it shows that even though everybody tends to think of bike companies as being really greedy, money-hungry, things that are just stealing money from all of us that are obsessed with bikes, they are actually doing things that are making things cheaper, hopefully. Um, I wouldn't expect a drop in price for Fox suspension because Fox suspension will continue to get better as you know, all brands do. They put more money into these things. Um, but maybe this is a way that it isn't going to jump quite as much as it was uh, otherwise. So, uh, yeah, kind of cool to see man. Um, and pretty sweet because hopefully we can get some more bike folks in our region. Uh, next thing I wanted to share too, was that specialized released a women's specific saddle. And I wanted to have a bigger discussion around this about women's specific stuff. So like, uh, how do we feel about, how do you feel about this? Not we, but how do you feel about this? So like certain brands make women's specific products, then certain brands don't. And when a brand doesn't make a women's specific product, the marketing message many times is, well, yeah, we don't, it, it would be patronizing of us toward women to create a product specifically for a woman, woman, you're no different. You're just as capable as a man. You can, you know, have the same bike or the same equipment, anything else. Conversely, the way that marketing spins it when a saddle comes out that's specific for a woman mm-hmm. is you are unique and we need to tailor to your specific needs. Yeah. Now I I agree with both perspectives, right? Like, Depending on what it is and what depends on the product, yeah. right? Yeah, like a saddle, I feel like for sure that's very like an anatom like our some of the largest anatomical differences between a man and a woman are going to be affected by a saddle, right? It's pretty clear. But when you're getting into like differences in terms of stems, bars, seat posts, even like frame sets in some cases, yeah, it's not quite as big of a difference. No, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I think that if anything, valving of shocks and forks should be different. Agreed. But I think it should I, be. I don't think that, you know, 
just because you slap a shorter set of cranks and a narrow set of handlebars in a women's specific saddle, that's considered a women's specific bike. Yeah, that's the tricky part, right? Yeah, it is. Like brands that call it a women's specific bike, but then they just spec it with a few different items and paint it a different color. Yeah, and they put pretty flowers on it or you sure. know, whatever. Like it, that's not women specific to me. Yeah. So, but should they have women specific bikes, or should they just be on the same bikes because they don't need something entirely different? Well, I think I think that goes back to with right? you know it, that's the difference though. Men are unique and different from you know you from to me. Yeah, yeah. You and yeah. I might ride the same size bike in a lot mm -hmm. of cases, but you hate my saddles. I hate yours. Mm -hmm. I like to run a bar at a certain width. You like to run it narrower. You yeah. know, there no matter what, I don't think you're going to appease everybody. Yeah, in yeah. any case, so, that's tricky, man. So if you don't do women specific saddles, at least offer women specific saddle aftermarket and just put a cheap, you know, general, like basic saddle on every bike. I mean, yeah, that's the only way to do it. So in, in your house right now, uh, you and your partner, Sophia, mm -hmm. um, who is also a very fast professional racer, Evelyn Dong, who is an extremely yeah. fast racer. Uh, you have like a fast house and then you have like yeah, we do. <laughs> Ryan Standish or, or you have like a rotating list of other pros that basically live at the house, uh, and male and female, mm -hmm. um, do you find that like like that does Sophia just use like a standard saddle that that is a male saddle? Does she use a female specific? Saddle? Um, I think it kind of varies on the bikes. Mm -hmm. Um, on her mountain bikes, it's actually just like just a generic like unisex saddle, but it's one that she prefers. And mm -hmm. I think um, actually her Chloe and Rose all use the same saddle from huh. Pro, and then I use a different one. Got it. So they have this the saddles that they prefer, and then I have the one that I prefer. Yeah. But they're all unisex saddles. It's, there's not like like a male or female saddle or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, and then I think Evelyn as well is just on a regular like regular yeah. saddle. So it's kind of interesting. Like th this saddle that like Specialized released has a lot of like it makes perfect sense. It actually kind of looks like your saddle. It is the power saddle, right? Yeah. So since it's the power saddle, it's got a similar shape to it, like in the sense that stubby nose. Yes. And like a, but normal back end of a saddle, just of not a really long front end. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that it has like a cutout, but it's supported instead of a full cutout. So like this is like an indentation almost where it drops down. It isn't fully cut out. And then it's got like a different material there, mm -hmm. which is basically like foam. And then in front of that, it looks like it's, it doesn't have a flexible nose, but it's got an extremely soft nose thereafter. Okay. So like in one respect, you could almost look at this, like it's supportive and that's the key thing. So it's not there, but it's almost like a triathlon saddle. And I guarantee you triathletes are going to use the heck out of this saddle. Yeah. Because of the fact that when you have to roll forward like that in your pelvis, having everything being softer in the front, but still somewhat supportive mm -hmm. is going to make it better. Right. So like, even though this is a women's specific design, I could see them carrying this over to the men's design. Like a lot of these elements for sure. It would make sense. Cause like a cutout, the way that the cutout is, you're still going to get all the benefit that you would need as a male. But then as a female, it seems like they finally actually paid attention. And the story they tell, and I don't know, I mean, I trust them, is that they they actually did a bunch of pressure mapping on saddles and everything else to try to find out unique demands for a uh, female versus a male. So, man, it, it, it's kind of cool to see them do something like this, especially because I just didn't know where they stood because they took the women-specific tarmac their road bike and then they made just a normal, they made the men's one and then they just gave it different colors. And yeah. that's like, you know, if you're a female and you want to ride a specialized tarmac, you just buy a tarmac. You don't buy a women specific one. Okay. But maybe it makes more sense to have the same frame and then different, 
you know, saddle or components like this. I don't know. Women, if you're listening to this, you are listening to this, please let us know how you feel about this. Do you find it offensive when brands make women specific products or do you find it offensive when they don't make their products or how is it, does it become offensive? Yeah. Cause I want to understand this as a marketer. So anyways, uh, good job specialized. I think <laughs> I don't really so know. far, <laughs> yeah, maybe I think, um, all right. Uh, next point, uh, this one, uh, EWS and UCI, they're partnering up. And this one already heated up this week because there was a forum post that got deleted. Somebody tweeted something out about saying, uh, I think Brian Lopes said, I hope these rumors about the e these EWS riders isn't true. If so, it'll be bad for the sport. Um, something like that. Or maybe somebody else tweeted and said that last part. And then another person, I guess, started a forum post in Vital um, saying that there were people that are going to be listed as being popped for doping. Because now EWS has testing because of as sanctioning of, with the as UCI. Of this year, I or think as of so. 2019. I think as they, I think that they probably. Ha I don't know if they had testing going throughout this year, but mm -hmm. somebody has been tested and apparently caught, and we'll find out who it is. It's a good thing. Yeah, yeah it's a I very think it's good, good thing. I absolutely agree. Like all sports, yeah, totally. Like if you look at like, I don't know why people would think that enduro or downhill would be exempt from anything like this. Like you see, like a lot of people just think of doping within the context of if you pedal a lot, then yeah, that's where like it matters. But that's totally not the case. Being stronger is good for just about anything. Anything. Yeah. More fitness is going to make you better at riding a bike downhill too. Like yep. it absolutely will. And then on top of that, then add in things like Adderall that yeah. guys can take, and that like especially when you're talking about downhill or enduro, like really fast stuff like that, that turns you into Superman. Like you're able to process so much so quickly. Um, it's, it's crazy. And then, you know, you can get addiction to that. I have plenty of other dangers to it, but, and who knows what the long-term effects are. But anyways, like, I think it's really good to see. It's going to be interesting to see though, like if this ends up changing the way EWS works in any way, if it makes it a little bit more official, if we're going to have a world championship, um, as a result of this, I'm curious to see like enduro world champs now. I don't know. Yeah, probably, I, possibly, huh? I, I assume we'll see it. Um, and then that also kind of raises the question, if that's the case, then are we really like, because it seems like EWS is just becoming one downhill race after another downhill race. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what an EWS race is. It's just like downhill runs and just like stacked into each other. Yeah, the, you do have to pedal back up though. You of course. Yeah. But like the, what we've heard from EWS riders that shall not be named, um, but we have heard that, the common consensus is it's entirely too much now. Yeah. And in many cases, they're saying that these tracks are way harder than downhill tracks that they're having to do. Absolutely. So yeah, it's like, the, it's kind of going, and if that's the case, then like, the, does this dilute the value of just a single downhill world championship? If in the end, Enduro, Enduro is just going to be like six of those stacked together that you have to pedal back up to? Like, you know, so they should think about Enduro and where it sits. Like, should mm -hmm. it actually go back to what it was, was purported to be originally? Yeah. Like an, an actual event where it was like, it requires a good amount of fitness and some pedaling, not just, you know, uh, a person that can descend and then pedal as they pace on a liaison. So interesting stuff. Um, California Enduro series, they announced they're, they're part of the EWS next year. One round is that's mm -hmm. going to be North star. We're going to be there. It's going to be a lot of fun. <clears throat> that one's on my calendar already. Good. I'm looking forward to it. Are you going to race? Uh, I want to, I want to try to do like a, I want to try to qualify. I think you have to do a lottery to get into an EWS race or qualify. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I qualified last year. I think I got like seventh, mm -hmm. I think, in the age group. I don't know. I have to look into that. But I do want to race. Do you okay. want to race? I don't know. Do you ever want to do an enduro? I would team? love to. Yeah. 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 I think you'd be really good at it. It'd be fun. I've only ever done uh, one of the local Utah ones. It was a few years ago. But yeah, fun. I feel like you'd be good at it. 
you're, you're fast going downhill. Um, but they're going to Mexico this year, California Enduro Series. Baja. Yeah. Ensenada. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Which Baja, California. So it's still okay, people. You can relax. Yeah. Um, people, somebody like cracked the joke. They're like, you know, what's next? Are they going to go to Nevada? And I wanted to be like, well, little do you know. <laughs> they have. <laughs> Let me Nevada. tell you. Yep, yeah. they've done it. Um, so uh, anyways, uh, it's pretty cool to see. Congrats to them. Uh, and I'll be racing that North Star round for sure. I don't think I'm going to make any of the other rounds, though. Yeah, that would be the only one that I'd be able to do anyway. So. It'd be really tricky mid-XC season to get down there and do that. So Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, two more bits of news. Uh, Tenneco bought Olin's. They're the same people that own Rancho suspension. Yep. So they're like, uh, Rancho, if people don't know, usually when you see Rancho suspension on a vehicle, you're kind of like, eh, they needed to replace <laughs> the struts. Yeah. <laughs> so they just got something. It's not like, it's like super like high end, really nice. It's not like Fox suspension. Yeah. I can see Fox. Suspension it's not Fox, Bill Stein, yeah. Icon, you know, a bunch of those other big racing brands. So this is where it's strange. Cause I feel like Olin's is perceived as a premium brand. <clears throat> Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, Olin's is seen as premium. Yeah. And but it's getting bought by a company that isn't very premium. That, that happens a lot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Why, why try to build a premium brand if you can purchase one? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it makes sense I mean, from their perspective yeah. for sure. Um, and I hope that uh, Kent Olin's, I think is his name, um, but uh, I hope that he was able to sell it off um, and, and make some good money off of it. But. Yeah. Anyways, uh, so stay tuned to see some changes there. I wonder if Specialized will keep using their stuff. That'll be interesting to see. So I guess looking a little closer at this, like you said, just from their perspective, Tenneco is probably pretty excited Yeah. because they don't have to build a premium brand. Maybe this is them getting into, because I've heard of like Showa and Kayaba, they're, they're prominent in the motorcycle world. Mm -hmm. I've heard of them getting interested in the mountain bike world more because less dirt bikes are selling all the time. Yeah. And certainly less dirt bikes where people want to actually like spend money on suspension. Um, and, and more and more mountain bikes are selling. So like they see it as an appealing market where they can cross over. Maybe that's what they're focusing on. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know, but hopefully it doesn't mean anything bad for Olin's. Um, hopefully Olin's continues to push out, you know, higher quality stuff. Hopefully it doesn't, you know, turn it into a Walmart situation. True. <laughs> that would suck. Yeah. Um, and then last bit of news um, that we have is coming from Fuji and Performance Bike, um, their parent company, which is ASE. They filed for bankruptcy, which is going to be interesting to see how that actually and they are doing a restructure. So it is a chapter 11. Yeah. So, and for people that don't know about that, you have debt. It's from so many different places. Uh, you basically can get into a situation where it's, it's inefficient to be operating and paying off that debt at a certain point. So then you can consolidate that debt with bankruptcy. And then basically what happens is debtors get paid off to a certain extent, whatever that is, it's mm -hmm. agreed upon. And then the company just has one single debt source and ends up managing and working that off Yeah, and are paying that off. Right. So like, that's what they're kind of going through. So this doesn't mean that it's over for Fuji. In fact, in some cases it might mean reallocations of funds are more possible now. So maybe Fuji gets more. So like that, that's the thing. Maybe before, like they weren't able to, cause Fuji was leveraged too high. True. So at this point now they won't be as leveraged and they can send it out. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe they can build a carbon enduro bike now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave that there. <laughs> um, and that basically more or less covers it with the news. There's not a whole lot of, lot of team stuff going on. Uh, did we announce that Yolanda was on track? Yes, we did. Why did do we? we keep having to bring Yolanda? Sorry. Just Sorry. throwing salt into the wound. You're not even... Yeah. It's going to be a super team, man. It will be. Yeah, yeah her I'm, and Emily are pretty awesome. I'm excited They'll to see great. that. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that Yolanda will race more in America? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if she came over for Benelli and 
uh, Bale Lake now. Yeah. yeah. You think she'll do an Epic Rides race? I don't think so. Think she would do Carson City off-road? I don't think so, but who knows? Luke glancing, at home. Glancing over <laughs> Steven. <laughs> All right. Uh, with that, let's get into the business. It's business time. All right, so we're going to talk about a topic that I want non-racers to not tune out on right now. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about racing, but we're firstly going to address this from your perspective. So, Steve, I want all of your reasons, because you don't race much anymore. You went for a period of time where you really didn't race a whole lot at all. Yeah, I didn't race much at all. Yeah, yeah so was two seasons. From that perspective, tell me why racing sucks, why you stopped, or why racing sucks. Because it's expensive. Okay, good point. Yeah. Keegan, do you have a point? Because you race for a living. <laughs> <laughs> as, to, as far as why it sucks? Yeah, yeah. Or like uh, why a person might feel like I don't want to race my bike. The downsides to it, basically, in short. Man, I guess people, I mean, it is difficult, you know? Like, it's hard. Like, you have to train. And if you don't train, then it's even harder. So it's kind of <laughs> like it's hard whether you're fit or not, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think for some people, they just enjoy riding their bike. And that's yeah. great. You know? Like so. the stress aspect it adds to, to yeah. riding your bike. A lot of so people you're enjoy like, that. When you go out for, you can't just go out and enjoy every single ride. You're like, oh, I have to, I have to train today. I have to focus on this. And even if you don't do that, then the racing, I guess, isn't going to be as enjoyable. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's and people, you know, some for people, they just rather just go ride. Yeah. Yeah. I can it. see that. So. Like, I don't think any of the guys other than maybe one or two at Worldwide Cyclery Race, I could be wrong. Okay. And they're all as diehard into bikes as you can be. Yeah. Right? So, like, uh, making you a racer doesn't make you more, like, locked in or diehard into bikes necessarily. No, I don't think so. Um, And so that's, like, a big misnomer. Um, What racing can do is basically just give you a point of of progress or something to make riding more fresh if you haven't raced in a long time. Um, It could be something that just makes you feel like you, it forces you to level up a skill that maybe you've always wanted to, but then, and you forget about it. Then once you get on the trail, you're reinforced. That's reinforced once again, like, oh gosh, you know, this is really hard to pedal on steep climbs specifically, Mm -hmm. you know, or it's, I really suck at the technical descending stuff or, you know, whatever else it might be. No, you don't. You're pretty good, bud. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. You knew that was me, right? Yeah. 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 Um, But like you, you think about that though. And, and it's, um, you may have a skill that's a block for your riding and enjoying riding and racing might actually be a way to kind of really push you to become better. It sets goals. It makes you, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I found too, is like uh, a lot of people that ride, they want the solitude and they don't want to be around all of those serious racer types. I get that. Mm -hmm. But also like I've met really, really great friends and good people through racing. Um, that are not the crazy serious racer types. Absolutely. Um, so like, I feel like that's another perk for racing is that you can yeah. meet really cool people. The people just to go enjoy riding with. Yeah, like, totally. Um, so we're going to talk about why you should do a race in 2019. If you're a racer or if you're not a racer, mm-hmm. uh, tune into this because basically we'll just talk about different events and hopefully if you are a racer, maybe you'll consider a different racing format. So I always find that really fun to kind of mix it up and change things up, especially if you focused on one for a long time. That made this year totally awesome. Just, yeah. So yeah. like, I guess the, the, the first point for that, Steve, let's talk about that. Okay. You traditionally, did you start out in downhill racing? Uh, I started BMX. BMX. Then you went to downhill? Then I went to downhill. And then you went to enduro? Yeah. And then I got out of cycling. When I got back in, I went straight into an enduro bike doing some light XC stuff, but never being super... Yep. I was never top 
I was never podium material because I'm a Clydesdale and the Clydesdales that are always podium are like the guys that are 6'4 and like 199.8 pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just nothing but muscle. Yeah. And so, um, but yeah, so I did a lot of enduro, did that really heavily for three seasons. Yeah. And then that was when I decided after my knee injury that I wanted to be a faster climber. Yeah. And that was where my XC stuff started. Yeah. And you raced Carson City Off-Road last year. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of like changed things around. Like I've seen it, I've seen a huge change in the rider you are for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been pretty cool. Now, Keegan, you've raced what type of races your whole life? I guess primarily you started guess, out with XC. Yeah. I mean, I guess I mean the first race I ever did was like a little, you know, little, like little Shimano kids race, like in the grass field at one of the yeah, Norbas yeah. in Deer, at Deer Valley when I was, I don't know, I've been seven or eight years old or whatever, huh. but yeah, I mean, been just primarily cross country, marathon, a um, little bit of cyclocross. Okay. And I've done one gravel event, the Crusher. The Crusher and the Tusher. Yeah. That one looks um, really hard. And yeah, some stage racing. You have but, a different deal though, because you're kind of paid to race a specific kind, right? Yeah. So like which that's is your job. Yeah. XCO marathon. Yep. Yeah. And that's your specific focus. So you can't just be like, I'm going to go experiment and go do downhill for a bit. Like, yeah, no. I'm going to go do rampage. Let's see how yeah. that goes. <laughs> can't I mean, really like do that. you can jump in and do a couple if they like, if they fit in the schedule, like, Oh, I want to go do crusher this year. Like there's, it fits in the schedule or I can go do, you know, whatever grinduro, some, right. any sort of like, gravel race. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it just means it's hard to fit other cool, other stuff in there. What do you think is the best event for a person to start out with if they haven't raced? You look at me. Yeah. Yeah. I want your, I, what do you think? We always say epic rides, but I think something like an epic rides is great because you have that if you're the type that's not a racer, it actually has all of the non-racing things that you might also be interested in anyway. Yeah. In concert. You, you can watch like, us race around circles in the crit. Yeah. It's you get like a whole town you get a whole like weekend. into it. Yeah. You get, you know, really good food. You get, you know, it's just a whole experience, not just a show up on Saturday morning when it's really cold and dark outside and go race your bike and go home. Yeah. It's not. And there's different lengths. You have like 15, 30, exactly. 50 yeah. different categories yeah. within each one. So I yeah. think something like that, either like a bike festival that has some sort of race or like an Epic Rides event would be a really good first race for anybody to get into. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's probably the best one because it gives you options. Like if you're the type of person that just wants a big, long, epic day and you're an experienced rider, then you can sign up for the 50. Like, mm -hmm. and you can do the amateur 50 or the 35, or if you're just want to dip your toe into the water, do the, do the 15, yeah. um, which is awesome that they have like those options. I'd say a gravel race too is another good option. I, I was just thinking of like Sagan Fondo, the gravel that yeah, we that did. Was that fun. was actually a ton of fun. That was a killer event. Yeah. Like, and that one you can, in a lot of gravel races you can do on your mountain bike, like, and it's just fine. And you'll yeah, be definitely. right in there with plenty of other folks. Just don't take, don't take your Santa Cruz V10. <laughs> Not that mountain <laughs> yeah. bike. Not yeah. that mountain bike. Along those lines though, the other type of format that I was thinking of, I know some people are going to think this is silly as cyclocross. Mm -hmm. It's like a super, like if you're the type of person that is a little bit worried about like the, if, if technical stuff worries you or anything else like that, cyclocross is perfect for yeah, it. You just get off and run. If you don't <laughs> yeah. want yeah. And you can race a mountain stuff. bike. You can race a cyclocross bike. You can race your gravel bike. Yeah. It really doesn't matter. A road bike. You could. Yeah. Maybe. You could. Yeah. Yeah. Zach Allison did from team cliff bar racing. He raced Reno cross this year Yeah, and in the industry race on a road bike and he passed me. <laughs> was he running slicks too? <laughs> he was running slicks. Excellent. Yeah. He was running MV seven eights, their road wheels the, yeah. on his crit bike yeah. and running slicks. Yeah. Excellent. Maxis Padrones, I think. <laughs> uh, 28s or 25s. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. He was running speed plays. Like he was uh, like, yeah, the full <laughs> deal. Um, 
Uh, but that's just no replacement for Watts. But anyways, another good thing about cyclocross is the fact that it's grass. So like if mm-hmm. you if you're afraid about technical skills, you fall over. It's grass. It's okay. We like, did that when we were three, and it's fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they're yeah. short. You know, forty-five yep. minutes, hour tops. It doesn't take take your whole day. You can do that, then go still do whatever else you want. Yeah, you feel like so. you've accomplished a lot after a cyclocross race too, because usually it's so short, and you just push really hard, and they're like steep little parts. So mm-hmm. like afterward, you're like, oh yeah, I did a good workout. Like, yeah. check that off. The it's list. like a forty-five minute long heart attack, and then yeah. you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great. I'm sure people are flocking to it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I guess let's let's start with. I, let's just go down. I, I put them down in an order, but let's start. Let's start with gravel, and this is probably the most variable type of event because, you, depending on the profile, like if this is a gravel race and you live in the Midwest, you might have one that's pan flat. You might have one that's just constant rollers, or if you live out in the West Coast by us, you might have one that's kind of a mountain bike race. It's like it's yeah. not really. Yet. That's how all of our gravel races. Yeah. Are. Yeah. <laughs> They're kind of hard. Yeah. And then if you live back east, you might have one that's just like you might have like really long sustained climbs, but on these like you know really like uh, more like fire road back road sort of stuff. So it can be really varied, and that's kind of the appeal of gravel to me is the fact that you can pick from so many different types of races. And even though a lot of roadies do gravel, it doesn't have a roadie feel yet. No, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. But that's the thing. So within gravel events, I think that the roadies are actually, you know, I don't want to say shunned upon, yeah. but the people who are there to have fun definitely outshine the roadies that are there for like seriousness. Yeah, like roadies might feel a little uncomfortable. Exactly. Because hopefully they recognize the fact in this environment of normal people that they're like, oh wow, yeah, I'm coming in way too hot. Like, <laughs> I relax. Guess, yeah. I just when you get to, to the first aid station and they're serving margaritas and quesadillas, <laughs> yeah. Sagan Fondo. Sagan Fondo. Yeah. Then that's when you're like, oh, let's go ahead and calm down a little bit. They had baking quesadillas. And margaritas. And the best part is they knew all the fast dudes would go through that section first and not care about it. So they weren't even there. But then when Steve (laughs) rolled through and everything else, he told me, he was like, did you stop for the baking quesadillas? And I was like, what What? in the world happened? I missed this. So, but they didn't. I did not not, stop. Bryce Lewis came out of there with like a quesadilla in each hand, (laughs) riding down the dirt road with no hands at all, just holding the quesadillas, eating them. That's the best way to do it. Way to go. Way to go, Bryce, friend of the podcast. Um, So I feel like gravel events are you have in terms of demands like physical demands you pick like based on the course and most of them will have different length options the cool part about gravel is that it's more like ride at your own pace hang out there are a ton of people that are doing it with that same mindset so chances are you'll be able to find some folks that you want to ride with and usually gravel races are super well supported so Mm -hmm. you can go super slow and if you decide that you know oh i don't want to finish at one of the aid stations you know if they're packing up you can just ride back with people usually you can so you do have a lot of bailouts, you have a lot of options, and it's just super well-supported, I think. So makes you don't have to know and prepare for everything like you would with a big mountain bike stage race. It makes for strange bedfellows in that way, right? Like, yeah. you'll find yourself, like, with a mountain biker, a dude that normally does, like, downhill and enduro, and mm-hmm. then you'll find yourself with a roadie. And it's like, it's but it's like a, you guys just... It's kinda... like a bad joke at a bar starting. <laughs> <is what it laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so we'll talk about demands, equipment, and then which events that we personally uh, want to do or have done that we like. Um, so, I guess, demand that's more or less covered but you'll have you'll in terms of physical demands you'll have everything across the gamut like you could have races that are very repeatable and hard meaning like the ones with like a lot of rollers in there or you could have one that's very technical yeah. like something out here or you could have one that's really just sustained efforts yeah all over the place so you mm-hmm. get to pick equipment let's talk about that um what's your ideal gravel bike setup what would you have keegan yeah probably 
like a 38 to 45C tire. Like, Ooh, like, I like I, when I raced the Crusher, I used the Rambler. Mm-hmm. I think I used the famous, the camera was a 38 or 40. And what um, bike did you ride in that case? Uh, I was racing for Cannondale then. Okay. Um, but so now I'd race. Super X or did you now? put? Yeah. You did a Super X, okay. Instead of a road bike. And then yeah. now you have the pivot. And I'd race the vault. The vault. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then so, and those allow bigger tire clearance than a road bike. Yeah. Which is like one of the appeals. Which I think is key. And I think, mm-hmm. I mean, unless it's a really technical race, I think like about that 40 is more, this is plenty. Like for the Crusher, for example, mm-hmm. like 35 would be fine. Like 38 is plenty. Yeah. Um, but I know like if it's really technical, maybe you want to run the 27.5 wheel with a bigger tire yeah, right? Yeah. like a two Oh or two one, like, like an Aspen or something like that would be good. Like races out here. Yeah. Yeah. Or like <laughs> Jeff Kabush raced at Iceman, a mountain yeah. bike race and he won. <laughs> he yeah. did. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty sweet. Yeah. Good job, Jeff. He'd love only to Jeff, control. Only Jeff would do that. <laughs> only Jeff would do that and be able to pull it And off. be able to win. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't exactly. work all the time for him, but nope. it, it, it does sometimes. <laughs> and when he does, he just trolls everybody. Yeah. Um, uh, how about you, Steve? What would you run or what have you? run that you really liked? Um, so I run my Super X. Um, I've kind of Frankenstein the drivetrain on it. So it's kind of a mixed mountain and gravel setup. Mm-hmm. So I'm running the TRS race, the 946 cassette in the rear. Mm-hmm. So I have that huge range, but I run a really big 44 tooth chain ring up front so that I have a 44.9 for my top out gear. I That's can pedal at about 42 miles an hour yeah. easily. That's nice. Um, and then I also have a 44, 46 underdrive for the climbing mm-hmm. so that if it does, you know, for varied stuff, especially mm-hmm. here, I can handle really steep stuff and I can handle all the high speed stuff. Um, I run a full uh, K-Edge chain guide system. I run their CX chain guide that's and mine's super, modified. I think um, that's smart. Even you definitely like, if you don't have a clutch derailleur, you definitely want that. Yeah. And yeah. I'm running both. Definitely. And but, if you don't, or, or if you don't have a double, like if you're, a, you know, if you, if you have a single ring, I think you have to have the chain guide. Yeah, oh, for absolutely. Sure. Yeah. So I run a full chain guide. Um, I do not run a dropper because the Super X is a 25.4 seat post, I would run a dropper if I was able to. Yep. Um, other than that, I just run a really, I run a set of Easton E100 handlebars. Yeah. So I get a lot of really good harmonic damping and compliance because on longer gravel rides, you really need it even with those bigger tires. It makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that um, I'll say is that with the dropper, you can rig it up with just like a standard remote, but one of the ways that we've rigged it up, it's super sweet. Is you get rid of all the... You um, get rid of the internals on your left shifter if you're running a, a one-by. And yeah. this, I know this works on a SRAM one. You can actually go to Trainer Road's YouTube page and you can see when I did it to mine. And you can do it on the Shimano's too. Yep. Yeah. So you basically remove the, the ratcheting guts, but then you leave the spring in there for that shift lever. And then you actually hook your dropper post cable up to that. Yeah. So then your dropper post lever is just your left shifter. Wow. It's a really cool setup. Yeah. And clean. depending on how your dropper post is routed, whether the cable end goes at the dropper, if it does that, you're going to have to Frankenstein Frankenstein some stuff to make yeah. the system work. Yeah. But it can totally be done on any dropper post with either Shimano or Minus SRAM shifters. Well, even a reverb. You reverb, you just run the wolf tooth converter the and converter. do it that way. Yeah, so, yeah, I guess you could do that. Yeah. Um, so uh, a thing to keep in mind with this is I know some people are saying a dropper post on a cross bike or gravel bike, it's ridiculous. But the fact is yeah. the more limiting your bike, the more enabling a dropper. Like, so if your bike doesn't have suspension and it has relatively upright geometry curly compared bars. to your mountain bike, curly yeah. bars, a uh, big drop, you know, because yeah. of that, then a dropper will be more beneficial, I would argue, on mm-hmm. that than it would be on like a full-on enduro bike. Absolutely. Because an, an enduro bike gives you more wiggle room, more forgiveness mm-hmm. elsewhere other than just that mm-hmm. one spot. Yeah. So like, and we've noticed that it helps a ton. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, it makes your handling way better across the board. Yeah. If I was to pick one, 
I think a gravel bike is probably best in gravel bikes and cross bikes. The difference between them is that a cross bike usually has a more upright head tube angle. So the fork sticks straight down more rather mm -hmm. than flared out to the front. Uh, and then it'll have like a, a gravel bike will usually have like a slightly um, higher bottom bracket, or I should say a cross bike will have an extra low one to try to help handling be a little snappier and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then a gravel bike will probably be a little bit more flexy and compliant yes. uh, to soak things up. Those are like the differences between them, but you can run either one. Uh, it's relatively fine. Most of them are interchangeable. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's really I, not like a pretty difference. I've raced the vault cycle cross, gravel races, like it's the same. Yeah. It works great. Yeah, there's really no no real effective difference there. Um, but the I so I think that that's probably the best bet. But if I was to build one just for fun, and I think that it would be a really cool bike, is I would actually take a hardtail mountain bike, a 29er, and then I would set that 29er hardtail up. I would keep the fork on the front to give me a little bit of cushion, mm -hmm. and then I would set it up with a drop bar, mm -hmm. and then I would set it up with SRAM's yet to be released 12 speed road setup that would allow me to run like ETAP road, something like that. Okay. Cause then I think that, and then I think that you're going to be able to run like an Eagle rear derailleur with her new ETAP shifters. That's just an assumption. But if you'd be able to do that, you'd be able to run drop to or drop bar shifters and drop bars to give you the different hand positions to get more aerodynamic and just change things up and mm -hmm. be more comfortable on a long ride. So that's the benefit there. But then you'd also be able to have wide range cassette in the back, like mm -hmm. a full Eagle cassette. That'd be a Franken bike, but it'd be actually really sweet. The only downside to this that I even see, and I love this idea, yeah. the difference is gearing. Yeah. Putting a bigger front chain ring on there, you might not be able to get far outside of mountain right. bike gearing. You might not be able to put a 40 tooth chain ring on there, it's yeah, hard which even, would be a bare minimum. It's hard to even want. fit like a 36 or a 38 yeah. on a lot of mountain bikes. It's getting harder and harder. Which I feel like harder. you need, like for gravel racing, you need like a 40 at the minimum. Yeah, yeah. Like. it's true. You'd have to yeah. go to an E13 cassette. Yeah. Basically, oh, but to, even then, you still won't have the top end that you need. No, but I mean that would be the closest you could get because yeah. you'd be dropping out of the nine. Yeah, um, you know that True. would be the that would be the only benefit you could get from having, I guess, overcoming that boundary of that small chain ring being. Uh, could also just run a double. I guess this, this is true. You could do that. Yeah, could do that. <laughs> Imagine that. That's weird. <laughs> Doubles these days, right? Yeah. Um. So it, I think it'd be kind of fun though uh, to have a bike like that. And the reason I think is the hardtail would have an even slacker head tube angle. Mm -hmm. It would have more compliance built in. It would be built for descending as well. Absolutely. So like, and on the gravel races that we do out here, that would actually be pretty sweet. Totally. It would make the bike handle really well. More comfort. It'd be even better. Yeah. Um, events. So the Peter Sagan Dirt Fondo. Yes. That was the funnest gravel race I've done by far. Absolutely. I've done lost and found gravel. I've done like a handful of other ones, but lost or the Peter Sagan dirt Fondo was so much fun. It was, it was a blast. Yeah. That thing was rad. Uh, it's really cool because that guy, um, he's, he's very much not a roadie, like no. in the way he behaves, you know, like he's just like pretty relaxed, pretty chill guy. He's really good on a bike, but he and all of his teammates were there or like a huge chunk of them. Mm -hmm. And they were just riding with everybody, talking with everybody, very normal. Like yeah, it, it did. Pretty cool. Yeah. And I liked that a lot. And the course was really fun because Kurt Gensheimer, the angry single speeder laid it out. Yeah. It was awesome. And Levi Leipheimer and, um, uh, bike monkey. They were the ones that really kind of put the event together. Yeah. So, uh, all, and Levi's a heck of a mountain biker too. So yeah. it all makes sense, but that's a really fun one. Totally. Is there a gravel race that you want to do? Yeah. I kind of want to do the Dirty Kanza, and that's Ooh. mostly because of Yuri. Like, okay, yeah, I just yeah. want to do it because I want to hang out with him for yeah. you know <laughs> two hundred miles. Yuri's always a good time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how about you? You've done Crusher. That one sounds yeah. really cool. That one's really cool. Is there another one you'd like to do? Honestly, I haven't really uh, looked into a whole lot of them. Like yeah. some of the ones, some of the ones that you've mentioned sound pretty fun. Yeah. Um, but 
Yeah. Rebecca's Private Idaho looks cool. That That's the good. other one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That would be cool. And then Land Run 100. Uh, a lot of folks from the Midwest that I know that race out there and ride out there, they say that one is like way cooler than Kanza by country miles. Like, I know I don't want to do Dirty Kanza. Yeah, that's I don't like, want to do Kanza. That's either. like one of the ones I know I don't want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that's just awesome. a long time. Yeah, I don't. I don't like riding. I've ridden 200 miles once. I don't ever want to do that again. Yeah, it was way too much, man. Um, so let's get into enduro. That's a different format that I feel like it has low barriers to entry as well. Mm -hmm. um, this one's going to go by a little bit quicker because we talk about a lot of this stuff all the time. We do. Uh, enduro, in most cases, like in terms of demands, I'll talk about the physical demands. Uh, number one, you need to be a good descender. Yes. You need to be strong in terms of your entire body. Absolutely. Um, and I'd say you need to. You don't need to, but it will make this process more enjoyable and you'll be able to go faster. Uh, then, But in terms of physical demands, what you have to do with pedaling, this is the type of stuff that really helps on off sort of efforts. Like you're able to go on as hard as you can for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And then you're off as you go through a technical section or a tight turn and then on again, off, on, off, because you have a stage that's relatively short in most cases. And then you just basically it's as fast as you can on that stage. So you don't hold back. Yeah. You just got every turn. You're just like full gas. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's like that. That's the type of stuff that's actually kind of easy for a lot of people to train for mm -hmm. because you can pull that together pretty easy, like pretty quickly. That's of fitness, those like higher, like aerobic to anaerobic, uh, that, that sort of capacity, it actually gets pulled up really quick with training. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty easy to train for. Um, what about equipment? Uh, let's set, should we set some boundaries where we feel like if you have like this suspension, this, this amount of travel, it isn't good for you. I think anything, it, it also does depend on the race, but you're going to be minimum 130 mils and for 30 mils, it better be a slack head tube, short chain stays, long front center, and a very capable mm -hmm. tire combination. Um, but really, you should be looking, you know, 140 to 170 mil, yeah. depending on wheel size. Um, sometimes there is there are Enduros out there where, say, a Jekyll 27.5 with uh, 170 mils of travel is way too much. Yeah, some of them, like, I can think of where even a bike that's like an XC hardtail where it's like 120, 100, like the, I guess the down country heart or sorry, uh, XC, full suspension, full suspension bike, to, yeah. but the down country bike, so mm -hmm. to speak is plenty. Yeah. Those ones are, yeah, are so plenty. Throw a dropper on there and you're, you're able to go it. just, okay. and maybe some other tires. Yeah. Uh, I would throw on some grippier tires, right? Yeah. Um, I've done that before on one and mm -hmm. it was, I just threw DHFs onto my ASR and it yeah. was much more capable, right? Yeah. Uh, it's amazing what tires will do. Um, I, th I feel like in most cases, people probably don't need 170 millimeters of travel. No, they, they don't know. need 160. There's not many people out there that can use that much travel, yep. to be honest. It's yeah. a lot of bike. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, chances are you don't need that. And I bet you're going to have a better experience. What that does give you, if you're racing things like I mean, BME and like really gnarly enduro stuff, like, uh, the one that goes on up in, um, at Deer Valley, mm -hmm. they go down the old, like, they, they race down the old downhill track. Yeah, the they go like downhill. fire swamp and thieves yeah. forest and like all those really gnarly trails at Deer Valley, uh, or like North Star or China Peak or Kamikaze Games, like some or the ones at Mammoth Mountain. Yeah. Like those are really gnarly races, um, but not all of them are even close to that. Exactly. Yeah. And even on even on those races, you still don't need 170 mils of travel unless no. you're professional enduro racer and you're going to actually use it all you're going to be happier on like 140 150 yeah. with a nice slack head tube angle yeah good tires some like, guy had like a uh, some sort of hardtail at the north star race he was on a hardtail that was one of the 60 to 60 to 9 guys yeah i think yeah. so yeah. yeah yeah and he had like a he i think he had like a 160 on the front of mm -hmm. his hardtail he destroyed me on every stage he yeah. was faster than me across the board 
So like really, and I was on a 150, I mean, I was on an SP55, right? So yeah. like, yeah, that, that's kind of crazy. So like the rider can get away with things if they're really good too, but it doesn't, just because somebody can get away with it doesn't mean that you should do the same. Yeah. It doesn't sound like very much fun to me. Oh no, <laughs> it'd be brutal. Like North Star is so not comfortable. It's yeah. very hard. So, But for the most part, I think a 140 29er or a 150 27.5 bike would be more than enough for most enduro bikes or yeah. most enduro races. So in terms of enduros that you'd like to do or have done that you really like? Oh gosh. Um, I like two sides of the coin when it okay. comes to enduro. I like really primitive, gnarly, sketchy stuff. Yep. Like China Peak. Yeah. But then I also like the idea of doing something like um, the BME series where you're like, say, at Winter Park. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Where um, it's more bike parkish. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, I really do want to do BMEs one day. Like I still have never been able to get out and do one. Yeah. And I just fun. like the idea of the big mountain enduro series. Yeah. So. Yeah. Are there any enduros that have ever caught your eye that you like to do? Yeah. I'm kind of with Steven. Um, yeah. I kind of like the raw, like rugged stuff. Like I would love to do the one at Deer Valley. Yeah. Um, like I've, I mean, I've, I could ride all those trails all the time. And like, I love, love that rugged stuff. Yeah. Uh, it'd be fun to go race them. Yeah. And just know that like, you know, you're, you need to just race mode. You're just giving her. <laughs> so I think it'd be, it'd be fun. Um, or to do, you know, like you mentioned, the bike, some of the bike park ones would be kind of cool. I so. think I would like to do some back east. That'd be uh, fun as well. Right? Yeah. Some chunkier stuff back there. Slippery roots. Slippery roots. Exactly. Like out like Killington? Yeah. Like Killington yeah. would be awesome in Vermont. Um, okay. Anything like in the, yeah, the Kingdom Trails area, that, okay. that sort of stuff. Um, New York, I've heard, has some really good terrain too. Uh, up in that Bronx region. or Manhattan, <laughs> <laughs> lower Manhattan to be specific okay, or in Canada, maybe Canada would be awesome. Like if there's any terrain, like, you know, like the St. Anne world cup is rad on an XC bike. I can't imagine yeah. like an enduro up in that area would be pretty cool. I'd, so, so like my, my all time one that I would love to do is trans Rockies up there. So, or sorry, not trans Rockies. That's the, um, you're talking trans, trans BC. BC yeah. Forgive mm -hmm. me. Trans BC would be my, my dream one to do, man. That one looks amazing. Another one too. That's like just far out bucket list stuff is trans NZ. So the New Zealand one, mm -hmm. that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I would love to do one where I'm riding up in the Canadian Rockies. That would be like, that would be the, the peak one. So that in the East coast, I like that pun there. <laughs> yeah. Didn't even notice just a natural dad, dad over here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, now let's talk cross country marathon. Uh, so that I feel like more people get into that than they do cross country Olympic these days. Mm -hmm. Um, and to differentiate there, what's the difference between those two? So cross country Olympic is, you know, your standard like world cup discipline. It's like 90 minutes. It's on a short, like, you know, like three mile long lap and you just do like six to eight laps, a yep. bunch of them more spectator friendly. Um, generally they're a little more man-made the courses like log roll-ins, drops, jumps, whatever. Yeah. Um, marathon is by the UCI standards, uh, a minimum of a 20 kilometer loop and wow. you, you can't do more than three laps. Okay. But then there's the whole other segment of uh, like Epic Ride Series, which are 50 miles, give or take, here and there. Yeah. Right around that three-hour mark for the winning. For you guys. Yeah. <laughs> so there's like a whole nother. 50 miles yeah. on a mountain bike <laughs> in three hours. It's ridiculous. But, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're, I'm lucky to do in like four and a half. That would be like a really good time. Yeah, I did the I did the Carson Epic in four hours and nine minutes, and I did the thirty five, which was forty two <laughs> miles. It wasn't thirty five. There we so, are. Yeah, that's that's fast, yeah. man. Good I was job. Ninth, ninth out of sixty seven. Heck yeah, in class for Way amateurs, to go, man. Yeah, good I job, told that Steve. I told that lady at uh, Starbucks that, and she didn't give me a discount. <laughs> she wasn't impressed. Sure. <laughs> doesn't she wasn't know. impressed. <laughs> she has no idea. She has no idea. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, cross country marathon. This is usually where you're going to see like. 
uh, you need to be able to be somewhat durable. And what I mean by that is you need to be able to be on the bike for a long time. Mm-hmm. That's not just in one shot. That also means like a lot of training leading up to something like this. Yeah. So I feel like if you, you can off the couch, something like this. And like, if you, you can off the couch, like I've even talked to Todd Sato. I was like, how did you decide on 50 miles? You know? And he was like, well, I feel like riders can kind of rally and they don't have to like, you know, lose their life to come out and ride 50 miles. He's like, you know, if you want to do it in a specific time, sure. You need to train a lot. Mm-hmm. He's like, but it'll completely, you'll be really tired, but it won't wreck you for weeks thereafter. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, you can go out and take your time, stop at the aid stations. Yeah. Like, yeah. Some people are out there just to do it and just to see like some of the awesome trail or country, like wherever you are. Yeah. So. We'll probably talk about Epic Rides throughout the majority of this one because they're the shining example of this in my mind. Yeah. Um, at least in North America. Yeah, for sure. They're use they're utilizing, and I think even worldwide, they seem to be really like leveraging this longer format very effectively. Mm-hmm. So, um, so in, in most cases you're going to have longer days. So you need to have like a, a ton of aerobic endurance and you can get that by doing stuff that's around threshold, just above threshold even, or well below threshold. Um, but basically you have to run this balance of, okay, I need to be, if I'm just going to do it with low intensity, I have to have a ton of volume. If I'm going to do it with high intensity, I can do it with less volume, which is more appropriate for the majority of us. Uh, because we just don't have a whole lot of time to just Some ride forever. Jobs. Some of us, yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, that was but, not a dig at Keegan, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but then the the complex part of that, though, is that you can only do so much intensity, like, and then you aren't able to get that. So, in my mind, the best way to train for a cross country marathon is to have key higher intensity interval sessions in the week, two to three, mm-hmm. and then on the weekends, that's when you get out for three hours. And you don't have to go out and do five. Like, let's say you're going to do 50 miles and it's going to take you five, six hours, something like that. Seven hours. You don't have to go out and do six, seven hours to do that. You can do three hours and you'll be amazed at what your body's able to stretch. It doesn't care. It doesn't. Seriously. Like it's something that people don't realize. Like when you get to that point, you're relying on the same energy systems anyway. Uh, you're talking about sure. Like some, you know, some muscular endurance and everything. And there's some mental stuff, I think too, you know, like, knowing that you can ride a bike for five or six hours, like sure that might help you if you do one or two of those rides just to be like, okay, I can do this. Like this is going to be easy. Yeah. Easy. (laughs) I think that's a good point. Like the mental side of it. Right. Um, and, and if you are training and you're building up to something like this and you don't have the time to go out and do something like that, and you're worried a bit about the mental, mental capacity side, just trust me on this, what you're able to do for three hours, your body can stretch well beyond that. And then the example is the Park City point to point. Yep. I've done it a couple of times. I was like six, seven hours. I'd never done anything that long in my life. <laughs> and the longest ride I did training for that, I think was four hours. Yeah. And it was fine. Like, yeah. Yep. Like ended up finishing like six and a half hours and you're like, man, that actually wasn't like, it was really hard, yeah. but I survived and my body didn't, you know, it's fine. Fall apart. Yeah, it didn't fall apart. <laughs> Almost did. Yeah, exactly. But, you know. <laughs> I think that's a good, yeah, it's a good point and a big misunderstanding. You don't have to replicate the race like no. beforehand. Uh, you're able to get away with a lot. And for average Joes, it's just not reasonable to do that usually. So with jobs and all that stuff. So do a few hard interval sessions during the week and then on the weekend, uh, get out for one, maybe two rides that are a little bit longer and you know, three hours. Don't, don't spend too much time away from family or responsibilities like that, you know? Um, but I feel like you can still with a 50 mile race or a 35, you know, it's much more well within your range, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to do a ton of stuff. Um, okay. So, uh, equipment for cross country marathon, how does your setup for a marathon race differ from a cross country Olympic race? As far as the bike goes. Yeah. So honestly, there is, 
the differences are pretty marginal. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I'll change tires. Like I'll run like, you know, like run an XO casing or I mm -hmm. won't run the 170 TPI, for example, or small yeah. stuff like that. Just because you're spending uh, more time out there. So yeah, there's, a chance there's for, more chance. Yeah, there's there's no sense. tech support. You have to carry all, everything on your own, right? So yeah. you don't want a flat. Um, <laughs> right. So... I generally run a little more pressure too, maybe just like one or two PSI more, even though it's a little slippery. You're like, ah, just for to help safety. with pinch flats. Yeah. Got it. Um, and then other than that, the bikes are identical. I race exactly the same bike. I just basically the only difference that no one sees is I change um, in the rear. I run a different amount of uh, spacers, vo Ooh. volume reducers. Uh -huh. So I like this. For my XCO awesome. bike, yeah, I, yeah. I use it's the, let's see, it's a 0.6 inch. Okay. Fox volume reducer, yeah, okay, in, in there, um, and then in the marathon bike, I'll use a pretty sure it's 0.4 inch. Okay, it's yellow. So yellow. actually run a little bit more Less, linear, more linear. Your, yeah, because yeah. for the XCO bike, I like it to be able to like, I like to be able to push down hard and compress to pump through roots or to like. Generally, there's bigger mm -hmm. hits. Like you're gonna go off drops. So there's like big steep roll-ins. So you want more and bottom you want that support. and because of more man-made. Yeah, and then I'll run. Actually, I'll run a little more sag too. I'll run it a touch softer at the top. Yeah. So I'll run like on the XCO bike generally like 30, 35 percent sag. And is that to be able to like uh, have a little bit more initial plushness over? Roots? Yeah, a little more initial plushness over roots keeps rear, rear wheel planted a little bit. Um, and it also slackens out the bike a little more too. Which is because right? those courses are gnarly. Yeah. Yeah. So. And most XC guys don't run that much sag, and I think a lot of them are scared to. Yeah. I'm not sure why. We have I don't know if they haven't tried it or if they have this weird like thing in their head like, oh, 15, 20%, that's all you can ever do. Yeah. But once you run like 30% sag, it's a game changer. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's something that I – so I want to touch on that really quick. I think cross-country guys don't run sa enough sag. And the reason is because we have it tied into our mind because we came from hardtails to full suspension bikes that mm -hmm. a full suspension bike, if it's squishy at all, it's inefficient and it's robbing power. Yeah. But that's not the case if you have a well-designed setup. Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, you and I were talking about this the other day, how on your pivot, you have a DW link. Mm -hmm. um, and then on my SB100, I have a link that also has a decent amount of anti-squat, but a good amount of initial plushness and it rests into the sag. Mm -hmm. So similar effect here that you also get with like a DW link in that respect. Yeah. And what it allows us to do is when we go through soft stuff or like chunky stuff or bumpy or uneven, we're able to keep the power down so much easier without getting bounced and jostled around. Yeah. We don't lose traction. You don't need to lock it out nearly as much. And mm -hmm. like, honestly, it's hard to know, like for an XCO, like how often I actually click the button. Like I just, you just do it instinctually. Yeah. But I really don't think I mess with it that much. Like the bike just stays like you just, you know, it just pedals well. Yeah. Um, Oh, and then back, so a little bit of a tangent there. Anyway, yeah, back yeah. to the suspension. Sorry. The mm -hmm. fork stays the same. I run two volume spacers in there, okay. volume reducers. Um, and I do change the PSI a little bit, anywhere between 75 and 85. Oh, wow. So it fluctuates a little you depending on the course. You a big variation there. Yeah, yeah, pretty big. Yeah. 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 And that's just so. more terrain-based? More terrain-based. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Generally, it sits right around 80, but I have dropped it as low as 75 and as high as 85. Wow. So, it's, okay. so if, or if the course has like a lot of chunky stuff, are you going to run it? softer or are you running it harder on courses with big hits like what's the main motivation for you to change that pressure in the front? um it's mainly yeah for the big hits i'll run a little more because i really don't like the front end to dive right that's why i have more spacers too yeah mm -hmm. um because i you know you, it's, it's scary when you go over a steep drop that's head angle just steepens up <laughs> yeah, yeah so don't want that <laughs> it's fine and i do play with the uh um 
I always get it confused in my head. The high, sp low speed compression. Oh yeah, yeah. So I turn that dial on the on the because Stepcast Thirty Two has that one. Yeah. Um. So I do turn that down a little bit for the long races for the marathons. Got it. Just so it's a little suppler off the top, so your hands don't get as beat up and whatnot. And mm -hmm. I then I turn it back up for XEO. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's um, the open adjust, the black open adjust knobs. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, other than that, job posts on both of them. Um, this is where you'll use hydration packs. In these cases, uh, whereas you won't in cross country for epic rides, I normally don't. Okay, um, but for like, but you have a, support out yeah. there on course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so and say for you. like a, you know, a proxy point to point, for example, I do use a hydration pack when yeah. I've done it. But uh, you have like yeah. a, multiple hydration packs that you use. You have like an elaborate system. People I can have, listen to the podcast that we talked about. Yeah, we, there's we, there's you there's and I went into detail yeah. on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I guess that's cross country marathon. The reason, uh, hopefully, that's that's super good insight to get like details on how things change. Um, in terms of bikes that I feel like are ideal for cross country marathon, I honestly I have a hard time arguing the case for hardtails for most people. I've raced. A hardtail every single epic rides I've done this year. Yeah. So <laughs> you're a special guy, right? Like, but for a lot of people, they're probably going to have a much better time, be faster even on their hardtail because they're just going to, or on their full suspension because it's going to be less fatiguing on their body. Yes. Absolutely. Or beat you up. Yeah. And now you're an extremely capable rider and you're like splitting hairs. So in that case, that's why you can play around with that and choose. And I have to race against Howard Grotz too. Yeah, exactly. He goes uphill quick. <laughs> I, have to, quick. I have to do everything I can. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's a, he's like a mountain goat, that little guy. Um, so, uh, I, I think like, and then for a marathon race, sure. You can ride whatever you have. Don't get me wrong. But I think the ideal range is somewhere around 100 to 120, uh, maybe up to 130. Um, and 120 in the front, 100 in the back. Yeah. It's perfect. It's a sweet setup. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Uh, let's talk about which events epic ride series. I think across the board, we can just check that off. Yeah. That's a killer one. Yeah. What about stage races that are like marathon ones? I think, I think those are awesome. I've had yeah. so much fun doing those this year. I did uh, the Annie Lucia stage race in Spain this February. That looked cold. And then that was really cold, which was, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm going to Spain. It's going to be beautiful. And it rained almost every single day. <laughs> yeah. Like I've never been so cold in my life <laughs> in Spain. Yeah. Um, and then I did the uh, Swiss Epic, which was that absolutely looked, incredible. That one looked amazing. And their stage racing is cool. Like, you know, a lot of times you go to these races, these countries and you race you know, one small little course, or even if it's a marathon, it's just one day, right? Yeah, yeah. The stage races, it's a week. Yeah. And you get to see so much cool terrain and ride so much cool trail, so many cool trails, that it's just like, it's an experience. Yeah. And I think a lot of people need to give them a try because they're like, I mean, sure, they're hard. They right? are. But like, it's no harder than an Epic Rides or any other marathon race. It's just longer, you know, day after day. But yeah. you get to see so much terrain. That it's kind of so interesting cool. too. Like your body's more capable than you think it is. Because yeah. like after like a really hard ride, I've only done one stage race and they were like the stages were on average around three hours a day. Mm -hmm. um, some a little longer, maybe one slightly shorter, mm -hmm. but, and I only made it five or six stages before I was concussed. But I remember after day one, I was, I woke up for day two and I was like, Oh, I'm kind of, I usually don't, you know, do another really hard race right after yeah. this. Yeah. So we like went from the gun and it was a super steep climb. And I was like, oh, I'm already feeling it from the first day. And then like on the third day, I was like, oh gosh, like, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. You just keep going. But my body yeah. managed to do it. And the other thing fine. is, the thing you got to remember is everyone's in the same boat. Yes. Like <laughs> you're hurting, they're hurting just as bad or worse. Yeah. So I mean, that's kind of how I survived. I'm like, oh, they're hurting just as bad. Just keep going. Yeah. So not, so. not this year. 
it's possible this year, but I don't think so just because of, I'm going to have so much time away from family for training, but, or for uh, work. But I think next year I definitely want to do Breck Epic. And that's, that was the one stage race I was thinking would be I fun. I want to do it, man. Yeah. It looks cool. Yeah. That one looks awesome. Right. Um, like high elevation, really cool area. <clears throat> Another thing I really like about it is that it's a stage race that stays in one place. Because mm-hmm. like the logistics of like moving around from one spot to another, unless you're getting rewarded with amazing new places every day, it's kind of mm-hmm. like, uh, it's kind of a hassle. Yeah. If it's like taking you to really cool spots, that's one thing, you know, but if, uh, it's still difficult though, it's really like, hard. With Swiss, Swiss Epic, they made it really easy when you have your little transfer bag and all that stuff, but it's still like, it's hard. You have to wake up every morning, pack your bag, like be organized. You're not just like in your one Airbnb. Get up and know? go yeah. race. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that's the cool thing about Breck Epic is you just stay in one spot. And then you just race all around there. That would be a really cool one. Um, I really want to do that one. Uh, Cross Country Olympic. Let's cover that one really quick. Uh, so that this is one where the most roadie of mountain bikers reside, I find. <laughs> I um, don't go there. Actually, yeah. I mean, I would argue marathon. Like marathon in Europe, actually. they're like dirt roadies. Really? They're yeah. dirt roadies. Yeah. <laughs> they're dirt roadies. <laughs> um, yeah. Nothing against them, but that's just what like, it is. <laughs> I feel like they're going more and more probably toward XEM from XEO. So in terms of my personal preference, I prefer XEO over XEM all day. Like I love short and hard races. I don't love really long races. That's just not what I enjoy. Jonathan prefers to be a hamster in the wheel. Yeah, exactly. That's what he likes. <laughs> True story. Yeah. yeah. So like I really like, I love cross country Olympic and I think that a lot of people don't do it and I understand why. It's because it's laps on a short course and that doesn't make for a great story. Like when you tell people at work on Monday, like when you came back, we like, I rode 50 miles on a loop and it took me above Lake Tahoe and I got to ride on this flume trail. I was on a cliff and it was like right cool. above the lake. And then like, we got to drop down and go back to the desert. It was like, people are going to be interested in that. It rained on me. I shivered at the top. Yeah. It hailed on me. It was great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Versus like, yeah, I did eight laps and it was a you know mile and a half loop. Around a park <laughs> in LA. Yeah, yeah, exactly. LA, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't make it for as great of a story. Um, but I feel like the cool part about it being laps is that you get to session stuff in the That's race. That's true. Absolutely. So like you get to basically have things and, and a lot of the time in an XCO course, it'll have like certain sections that are tricky. Mm-hmm. So it's cool because you get chances to work on it. Yeah. And you get to like be like, oh, I nailed it that lap and this lap, you know, one lap you'll botch it. You'd be like, oh, next time I have to make sure I get yeah. that right. And I feel like that's really helpful actually. And yeah, definitely having the course all within one spot that you can easily pre-ride and see another perk. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to pre-ride a 50 mile course before a 50 mile race. Yes. And it's like, uh, the other cool thing about XCO is the course is they're generally fully, like not necessarily fully taped unless it's a world cup or something, yep. but they're generally fully marked and there's like, they're well marshaled and like, you can yeah. just go full out, like as fast as you want to go. Whereas like Epic rides, you go, I mean, you can go, the trails are kind of closed, but not hundred percent closed. There could be animals. So like, you don't want to blow you're people kind of on your toes, <laughs> yeah. like you're paying attention to what you're doing. Whereas XCO, you can fully focus on just ripping, Yeah, which is really cool. Another, which is part of the adventure of XEM. Which is well. the, exactly. Which is part sure. of the, that's part of the thing is yeah. you don't know like like for example Swiss Epic I didn't hadn't pre read anything and you're just blindly like ripping down these trails and yeah. you're like kind of scared like fingers on the brakes like being really careful. Yeah. So it's cool, but yeah. it's also another part. Of, that's why XEO is so cool is you can just just sending it. So. Right. Yeah. I love XEO stuff. Uh, it's, it fits in terms of the fitness profile. This is where a lot of it's, it's similar to enduro in this, in the respect that you need to be able to hit it hard over and over, but it's different from enduro in the respect that you 
in the respect that you never get rest. Yeah. So, and it's usually 90 minutes long, 90, 90 minutes to two hours, maybe. Um, some cases it might be shorter for like lower categories. It might be 45 mm-hmm. minutes, might be 60 minutes. Um, but it's, you just don't get time to rest and you have to go hard. Yeah. So like you get to go hard and then settle in right around your threshold, go hard, settle in right around your mm-hmm. threshold. And you just kind of repeat that until things start to look weird and kind of gray and, and you go blurry. So, um, but that's, uh, so that's XCO in terms of equipment. You see like a lot of people with XCO stuff, the common theme that we hear from World Cup racing, which remember World Cup racing doesn't really represent the XCO that you are doing as an average Joe. Uh, World Cup courses are getting tougher in terms of technical stuff. So like- Kind of. Kind of? Yeah, what do you you think about that? It's kind of been changing the past few years. Obviously, I'm still like relatively new to it. I've been racing them since I was 18. Yeah. Um, But they, so- They've changed the way that most of it's man-made now, like mm-hmm. a lot of the technical bits. I mean, there's still courses that there is a lot of like natural, like kind of techie stuff. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it's like whether you're a good technical rider or not, if you just like lean back and hold on, you're going to make it down the A-line. Yeah. And that's like some guys are kind of against that. Yeah. Um, I, can I know see Jeff that. Kabush has written some some stuff on Yeah, he's not um, into that. <laughs> he's not into that. <laughs> no. Like, I mean, sure, it takes skill to ride down it. Don't get me wrong. It's still difficult. Yeah. But a lot of it now to the point where it looks hard on TV or it looks hard to look at it, but you just ride it. It's not nearly the same as riding some sloppy off-camber like filled with roots. Yeah. So it's it's changed. I think we've talked Um, about this before where if it's man-made, it's almost certainly man-made to have a solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's right. always an easy way through it. Not easy, but there's always a way a down it. A designed way down it. And generally, if you mess up, you're going to get hurt too because there's yes. a big drop off a side or you're going to catch your wheel at the top and end off the top of this drop or like yep. it's meant to look scary. Yeah. But if you're smart and know the right line, it really isn't that difficult. That's like at World Champs, so. there was that rock rollover that looked oh, terrifying look. on TV. And don't, that one actually was, if it when it rained on it, it was kind of terrifying. I bet, yeah. Because it was a natural rock that they put bridges up and over and like you can't see the backsides, so you're rolling up to it and you're just like, uh, well, I don't know. Yeah, that one looked terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Actually, time. Nino didn't ride it when it was wet. Really? He was, he was going around it. Wow. Yeah. Smart man. So that, if Nino doesn't ride it, that means it's kind of hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> you take a hint. <laughs> Dude knows what he's doing. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that a dropper post is, is a good idea with XCO for most people. It's just going to let for you everyone. get over that. Yeah, My everyone. Opinion. Yeah. Uh, it's going to let you get over that technical obstacle that they end up building or end up incorporating in a whole lot easier. Mm-hmm. And I don't care how good you are at bunny hopping a barrier when you're fresh, when you're cross-eyed because you're so exhausted. It's a lot harder. Yeah. So, like, you don't want to plan for freshness. You want to plan for fatigue. Yeah. And even on an easy course, like even if it's just like swoopy fast turns or whatever it may be, I think a dropper post is still beneficial. Like yeah. you save energy, like it just is better, safer. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so. even like, like just going back to world, uh, world cup, was it uh, Stellenbosch? Like mm-hmm. everybody was dropping oh, their dropper yeah. posts in that Burmy, you know, yeah. awesome section. I mean, you don't okay. necessarily need it. Like you can ride everything without it, but you no, can but go you faster. Can, if you can gain a second and a half in that or section. You, or if you go the same speed and save energy and go faster yeah. on the climb, like there's a lot of benefit to it. Exactly. I think it just takes time of using it and knowing how to use it. And like also in, uh, I think was it in, at Worlds in Switzerland, mm-hmm. there's like some kind of greasy, muddy, rudy sections. Oh yeah. I would just drop the post, like drop it like an inch. Yeah. Just enough that you can still kind of pedal. Mm-hmm. But you can move your bike around a little easier, and like so, there's a lot of benefits like that yeah. too. Yeah, so, so. I think Maxime Marat was one that was saying this year. He feels like the dropper post is a total advantage for recovery. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah. and I f- I feel like Nino isn't running a dropper post because so here's my theory. Okay, 
Nino is very good technically. I don't think that's a theory. That's just like accepted, right? He's like a very good technical rider. He's a good descender. And I feel like if Nino, if everybody else runs a dropper post and Nino's running his high post without a dropper, it's his advantage is kind of nullified. If he runs a dropper, his actual advantage might be less than what it is if everybody is on like high posts. So are you following me on this? So like if everyone had a high post, I feel like Nino would have a relative advantage. If everyone's running dropper posts, maybe would that only advantage have a slight, isn't quite as high. Yeah, he would have a slight advantage versus, yeah. yeah. So I believe a lot of it is psychological in the sense that Nino's hoping to maintain holding a dropper <clears throat> post because he sets the example for the rest of the sport. So he doesn't run a dropper post. He does sometimes. Has he run yeah. one in a World Cup? He, I think he, I'm 99% sure he ran one at Alpstadt on his hardtail. Okay, there you go. So, so he does. He's so not he totally against it. So, yeah. And I think that the reason he doesn't run it is because somebody else is going to say, well, Nino isn't running one, so I don't need to run one, right? Yeah. So if Nino isn't running it, I don't have to run it. And then as a result, basically what's going to end up happening is other people aren't going to run a dropper, and that just assures Nino's advantage over those people that aren't running yeah. the dropper. That's my mindset there. I don't know if that's right, but something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, events, cross country Olympic, what are the best ones you've done in the States? It's tricky cause they change a little bit more frequently. Yeah. I mean, some of the East coast ones are good. Um, oh, Missoula, that Missoula one's is really always cool. on my list. I really want to really do fun. that one. Missoula, sounds Montana. awesome. Fun course. Is that mm -hmm. still a pro XC team? It's not that high of altitude. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's actually a stage race this year. Is it? It's an S2. Oh, man, I think which it's is during, really cool. Uh, it's during a thing, um, during a thing, <laughs> good like yeah. a festival. Yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. I'll pull up my trainer uh, calendar and check. Yeah, so that one, uh, I'm a little biased, but Soldier Hollow. Yeah, that's awesome. Yes. The midway race, which is also a stage race. Yes, that's. So, it. Do you have any information on that yet? Uh, a little bit. I'm Not curious because I think it's the same weekend it's always been. Okay. Um, I, I saw the date on it. I definitely want to do that one again. I've ridden that course before. That was such a fun course. Like I, I genuinely loved it. It was really fun. Um, if we could, I think Missoula, Soldier Hollow, and then I feel like there's, doesn't Durango have one in the Iron Horse or whatever, Iron something, mm, Bicycle Classic? Kind of. It like races through a bar. Is that a marathon race or an That's, Olympic one? I think it's cross country. Yeah, 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 like an Olympic one. Because that one, it looks pretty sweet. You actually like race through, like you enter in the back kitchen, I think, or something like that. Okay. And then you end yeah. up dropping out of the cool. front like balcony and it's they like take two out a stories big window. out. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. and then yeah. it's like a two-story like ramp that you ride down from there. Oh, wow. It looks pretty fun. Hmm. Like I, I kind of want to do that one. Um, those ones definitely stick out to me. Um, I can't really think of any XCOs that stick out. Because it's it's tough. It's not like they're these big bucket list events. Because like I would love yeah. to do all the World Cups. Like the courses look amazing, but you can't do that. I think one, right. It's once in a while they'll have amateur events. Yeah, um, but it's pretty rare. Yeah, us average Joes don't get to do that. We're not average oh. Joes. <laughs> We're far above. Yeah, <laughs> got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm not doing one though. Yeah, I think that Too it's. Much. I want to say that it's Missoula is during Carson City Off Road Weekend. No, it's not. It used to be. Um, okay. but they got that figured out that conflicted once and then it was a bummer for both of them. Got um, it. so now they've moved it. But yeah. So Missoula this year, the UCI actually changed their stage race regulations. Mm. So now to be qualify as a stage race, you have to have one marathon day it has to be four days long. So they're like in theory, it'd be a short track time trial, XCO and marathon. Oh, sweet. It'd be cool if they so. made the time trial, like an urban one, or if they made it a super D. 
Yeah, and it could be anything. Like, I mean, they could do whatever they That'd want. Be rad super D. Oh man, super so. D is fun, which is just basically one enduro stage. Yeah, yeah, so that it's, or it's just a like lot more pedaling than the most. Than most for enduro. the most part. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Or just like one lap, one ripping lap of the XCO yeah, course. Yeah, that'd be, be fun. Pretty cool too. Yeah. So there's a lot of fun solutions for that. Oh, that'd be fun. That's how. That's how it should be. Like cross country racing should I be more. Honestly, like, I think that's how like all cross country races should be because you go. You travel to wherever you go and you do this one 90 minute race. It's like, why not do a short track on Sunday? And yeah. why not do a TT on Friday? Yeah. Something. Will you UCI know? allow like a four person eliminator for Ooh, that's a fun one goal. of their first stage? I don't know. I that no would idea. be rad. The eliminator racing is fun. Yeah. It's basically it like bracket racing where they have multiple people line up on a single start straight. They take off, but it's usually, you know, like a, anywhere from like four to eight people maybe 10 people mm-hmm. but and then they go and in it's traditionally it's like top two or three will yeah advance. yeah the yeah. course will have yeah. like man-made elements in many cases it'll be like short laps and they do like uh it'll be a short lap and you basically just do that one lap and then the bottom half gets cut and the next half goes on sort yeah. of thing yeah. it's pretty sweet um so yeah I, I would say man uh those are kind of the events that stick out missoula for sure i want to do it so badly looks like it has a fun Missoula's drop cool. in it too it does it's yeah pretty big yeah, like, by cross country standards, it's proper. Bigger than the yeah. Soldier Hollow drop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by think, a good amount. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, it's got to be a solid like five, six feet. That's pretty good. And if you're actually carrying speed off that, then you go yeah. even more. Yeah, so that's pretty good. That one looks really fun. Yeah, Steve, XCO stuff does it ever interest you, or just mm, more than marathon, marathon stuff? That's I mean, sure, XCO. I yeah. mean, it's like. I don't know. Yeah, the difference in short track. Right. So, like, so people know short track is usually like twenty to thirty minutes long. And it's usually an abbreviated course. So like more laps tends to be slightly or like less technical in yeah, it's generally most cases. Like pretty fast, wide open. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think they forgot about short track at Mammoth when they had nationals there that first year. So they like just panicked. Probably just and like up this track. Like, somebody, uptown, downtown, go. So, no, like <laughs> it was at the same place and it was like somebody just like drug their heel through the, through like the pumice, kitty litter and pine needles. Oh, excellent. And like go. made like a path and was like, go. And it was like, <laughs> did, did it was you race? Fun. It was yeah. kind of gnarly, right? Yeah. Like wow. it got loose in that yeah. one section. It was super steep and had like a steep, like falling away off camera switchback and huh. drop roll thing yeah but it was not like designed i remember we were one of the first ones to race it our age group and we like it wasn't even like trampled in like Mm -hmm. the first lap all of us were confused on where to go and we kind of like sat up and we're like where do we go (laughs) we kind of figured it out (laughs) but uh that one was really tough uh short track is always really hard because you know that it's the intensity is going to be extremely high yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Hmm. um so yeah Anyways, uh, that kind of covers, I think, the gamut. There's downhill racing, too. We didn't cover that. Um, one thing I want to add. Oh, yeah. Um, for, cross, I guess you could call it cross-country Olympic, but I think one way, if you want to give it a try, mm-hmm. is a try like your Tuesday night or Wednesday night series. Yeah, the Twilight yeah. series. Chances are, everywhere. yeah, wherever you live, there's going to be some sort of Twilight series, and it's mm-hmm. great. Get off work, go race your bike for like 30, 45 minutes. They're quick. That yep. way you don't waste your weekend because yeah. people still love to go do a big ride or have fun on the weekend. Totally. I think those are almost more popular in Utah than the weekend series. So I think yeah. that'd be a good way to give it a try. They're cheap. They're only like 20 bucks. It's sweet. Like, so give those a go. Yeah. We need a, we need a, we need a more substantial weekly series here. We do. And I've actually thought about putting on a short track race series. I just I would don't come do that. You know how I, I already am completely running out of gas on, on time. I don't know how I do that, but it needs to happen. Yes. 
But we, we yeah, just need to figure do it do out. This, yeah. I don't know. People, yeah. send us things. We'll yeah. have our people talk to your people and things will happen. <laughs> so um, uh, we didn't cover downhill. Uh, I don't know much about downhill in terms of personal experience. The one thing I can say is that it's pretty darn accessible for most folks. But the tricky thing is you're just going to get – if you're not technically inclined, then mm-hmm. you're sending yourself down a downhill yeah. course. It's expensive it's, too. It's expensive, but it's also you have this very, very niche bike that you can't use for anything else. Yeah, unless you have an enduro bike, then yeah, any you of your make local an enduro things, bike work yeah. almost. As long as you have a local bike park, they usually have summer series You know that they do downhill stuff. We've got North Star. Mammoth has theirs. You know, their Big Bear has theirs down south, We've you know, Southern California. I'll say yeah. you guys have them. Mm-hmm. I, they're North all Star, over Colorado. I swear, I swear North Star had a downhill race every single weekend this year. Dude, it was crazy. And then they had their two-day. They had a Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. It was like one race, but you had to do two different yeah. trails. Yeah. And they had it on boondocks basically all year. Yeah. Just sucked because it that trail was destroyed by was. mid-year. So, yeah. um, so I guess that more or less covers it. Uh, these are ways that you can race bikes without being a roadie. Yeah, absolutely. Which is really sweet. And the thing is, you just meet – I just – Especially uh, just kind of like a little tangent, I wasn't expecting Carson Off-Road to be as fun as it was. Mm. You know, I was trying to be very competitive with myself Mm -hmm. to try to be as fast as I could be. But at the same time, I had so much fun just being there and so much fun, you know, racing with people and talking with them on the climbs and um, and passing people on the descents and seeing people at all the different aid stations and you know just really you get to see people you already know and you get to meet new people and you just it's a ton of fun like it I, is. it's not even just about the racing aspect of it and so that's something yeah. that a lot of people don't think about beforehand so just go do a race it's fun I DNF'd and that's still looking back one of the funnest weekends of the year <laughs> yeah. so and I hate DNFing but um that place, yeah, I I, th- I I can't agree with you more. And I think that for me, all, what all this is, the bike racing stuff, I love racing. Um, it, if it's on a bike, if it's on skis, if it's on anything else, I just love racing um, because I feel like racing is hard. You have to mm-hmm. work for it. And it it's a metaphor for life in a lot of ways for me in the sense that like it allows me, I feel like I can strive and achieve at one thing and then it helps me have confidence to be able to achieve at other things, yeah, right? Absolutely. And I feel like bike racing is a, a good way to do that because if you're listening to this, you already like bikes. Yeah. So then you can go out and do it. If you haven't done an event, I encourage you to do it. It's not as, as intimidating as it used to be with things like Epic Rides or with things like Enduro Racing or with weeknight cross-country series that you have. Mm-hmm. It's not as intimidating as it used to be. Uh, you can get into it. You don't have to be crazy fast. That's a total misnomer. You just race as you are. That's fine. Uh, yeah. You don't have to be somebody you're not. So, And I feel like it just makes racing or riding bikes in a lot of ways. It makes it really enjoyable. You don't have to overdo it and get to the point where you don't enjoy riding bikes anymore. Yeah. But just balance it out. Exactly. Uh, I think more people would enjoy bikes more if they raced more. Mm-hmm. So anything else to add, Keegan? I don't think so. Let's get into the tips. You don't care? They'd count on your tips to live? All right. Uh, Steve, do you want to start? And sure. then we'll go with Keegan and we'll finish with mine. Fine. Yeah. Cool. Um, so mine's a little bit weird. Um, everybody knows that I come from an automotive I like background. I like it though. Yeah. Um, so ceramic coatings on bikes. Sounds uh, heavy. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> what is it? Yeah. Do you just like take the plates and you actually tape them on or like, yes, what do you, okay, absolutely. got it. Yeah. No. So ceramic coating comes in liquid form and it's a very, very thin hydrophobic shield that goes over 
the paint or whatever you have, you know, whatever your bike is made of. It's, you know, aluminum, whatever. Is it safe on surfaces like rubber or? It's safe on every surface. Yeah. And so what it does is it creates a very, very hard scratch resistant surface that things don't stick to. So, uh, I do it on cars. Um, I do paint correction stuff on like as a side job kind of thing on fancy cars. And I do the ceramic coating as well. Um, and that I did that on the Jekyll 29. I did it on Tiffany and it's made it to where cleaning that bike is literally just rinsing it off and drying it. And it doesn't leave water spots. There's no mud that sticks to anything. No dirt sticks. It literally is just like, you know, what's that? Those, uh, those pans that you see on TV that are like green <laughs> yeah. where they're just like, here, let's just destroy yeah, yeah. an egg. And yeah, then yeah, like exactly. it just slides right off. That's yeah. what dirt does like non-stick. once you ceramic coated. Yeah. You can buy um, stuff on Amazon for like 75 bucks for a little bottle and it will do like six or seven bikes. And I'm talking bikes, like the whole frame, spokes, crank arms, like everything on the bike you can coat in ceramic. Any brands you recommend? Um, as far as commercially available stuff, um, Car Pro US, um, they have, it's a brand called C Quartz. Okay. Um, so C and then the word Quartz, Q U A R T Z. Cool. Um, that works really well. Um, you can also use, there's a brand called Hydro Silex Recharge, okay. and that comes in a larger bottle and it doesn't last as long, but on a bike, you really, it's fine doing that. And that's what I did all mine in was Hydro Silex. Got it. Um, and their product, you basically spray on and you wipe it off like a detail spray. Oh, that's sweet. it. Is that the stuff that I got per your recommendation? Um, yes, actually it is. It's what you're going to be using on the, on, my on your new Tacoma once we, uh, well, did you already do it or do we have to do the yeah. paint stuff? Oh, you already did it. Okay, cool. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so that stuff usually lasts about a year on cars. So on bikes, I would say it's, you know, an entire season of that's awesome. getting filthy and cleaning and filthy, you know. What about matte finishes? doesn't matter. You it can put it on exactly matte finish. Does it make Absolutely. it shiny? No. Wow. It does not. It'll oh. give your matte finish a little bit of depth, uh, but it does I'm, not I'm make okay it shiny. That. Yeah. I no, like that. In fact, I just did, um, so I do Ceramic Pro is the brand that I use, but you, that's not commercially available. You have to be a certified installer. Yeah. Um, I did that on an AMG um, SL63 Ooh. Mercedes that was the matte charcoal gray color. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it looks perfect. Like it's still matte charcoal gray. It's not glossed at all. So, That's a good one. But it's actually, if you keep your bikes and you want to take care of them and you want to make cleaning them easier. Which is that. super nice. Yeah. Like the industry nine wheels, when I first got those, I was terrified of dealing with those, you know, the hubs and getting all yeah. the dirt out of every single one and using a toothbrush every single time. And so I just ceramic pro it and nice. ceramic coated it and went on my way. Nice. Yeah. That's a good tip, man. So, yeah. That was a useful hey. one. Yeah. Uh, Keegan, what tip do you have? Ah, so I think the new, uh, Maxxis Recon Race tire. Okay. It's uh, like kind of a tech tip. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. like, because a lot of people see like their little, like little Aspens a lot. That's what we generally race on. People are just now catching on to the Aspen. Yeah. It's right. still, yeah. still kind of scares some people. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. They're a little nervous to try it just because it is kind of small and rolls fast. Yep. But I think the Recon Race, it has like bigger side knobs. It's like, if you just took the regular Recon, just shave down the top a little bit. Same okay. shape, same side knob. So it rolls fast, hooks yeah. up really well. Um, a little more confidence inspiring for some. Huh, um, try this works one. well in like a little deeper, like if you live somewhere where it's really loose, hard, like loose soil, it's deep powdery stuff like here or yeah. in Utah or yeah. almost a lot of places. Or maybe in West. Yeah, or loamier soil. It might work a little better because it's going to bite deeper on the Got sides. It. Uh, so is it, so, do you feel like it rolls as fast as the Aspen? It's very close. I don't okay. think it's quite as quick, but it's definitely faster than the regular Recon. Got it. Um, and it's 
pretty close to the Aspen. Where's so. the Aspen faster than the recon race or where would you choose the Aspen over the recon race? I like the Aspen better in like, if it's kind of slippery, wet roots, okay. and rocks. Huh. Um, and if it's really hard packed terrain, okay. um, I think those little like small Chevron shaped knobs in the middle, yeah. like they kind of bite, like it's like sipes in a snow tire, for example, they yeah. like to bite on that stuff. Got it. Um, now I'd choose a recon race if it was like loose, powdery, kind of silty dirt. Got it. Yeah. So, I want to try that tire really badly. Yeah, uh, that, it's, that it's killer. I need to get that one. Um, we should both get it. I feel yeah. like it would fit. Uh, the majority of riding that we do. Also, a great rear tire. If you want to run the recon in the front, recon race in the back, it's like Ooh. it's like the like the Minion SS. Is that what, that's okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's similar to that, but the XC version, just smaller. Gotcha. Uh, nice. Yeah. Okay. So run that in the back, and then the normal recon up front. Yeah. Then you'd have pairs great. For like, they pair great together because it's the same tire. Just yeah. Shit. Different so the, tops. The side knobs, and you lean it over, you're gonna get similar characteristics yeah. to the front and rear. The rear isn't gonna want to jump. It's out weird to pair like different tires because they don't fold. They don't roll the same. And right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, okay, the the tip that I want to share, uh, I have it actually right here on the table. It's the Feedback Sports Range Torque Wrench. And I guess it's kind of like a set, um, but it's a torque wrench. Mm -hmm. And it comes with some bits. It comes in a really nice little like zip-up um, carrying case. Like I a soft carrying case, yeah. It's pretty rad. Yeah. so oh, the size of a cell phone. Yeah, it's not that big. I'm unzipping it right now but um, so I can count some things. But So it's, it's a torque wrench that's super easy to carry on trips, which I find huge if you're traveling with your bike. It's You want to make sure that you're taking your stem off almost every time you travel with your bike or yeah. you're taking the bars out of the stem. So as a result, you need to make sure that you torque those bolts down properly, mm -hmm. right? That's a big thing to make sure you check. Uh, but this also, like, if you're a home mechanic, but you don't want to have, like, a spend a ton on a lot of tools or anything else like that, this is perfectly good for that. Yeah. Um, it's a really cool setup. So I, I have it. It comes with, uh, geez, 12 different bits, actually 14 different bits. Um, so it has torques. It has Allen keys. It has a couple different things in there, some Phillips head screwdrivers even. And then it's just got a manually adjustable little torque wrench. Super yeah. easy to use. Very intuitive. I think it's cool. Um, torque wrenches a lot of the time are really expensive and overdone, but this one's awesome. Yeah. Or they're not adjustable or they, you know, have one bit on them or, you know, there's so many different ways that they all kind of suck. Yeah. Like, and I hate to say that, the bits, but, <laughs> but the, and the bits are so good. Like yeah. feedback sports makes really good tools. They do. So they may use extremely hard metal on yeah. their, on their bits. So then that way they aren't going to like strip and round and anything yeah. else like that or ruin your bike. So absolutely. Um, yeah. Anyways, that's my tip. I love this little torque wrench. It goes with me everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, I think, uh, another cool thing from feedback. So. It's really odd when he goes to the bathroom in the morning and he takes his torque <laughs> wrench with there. him. Yeah, exactly. What are you guys doing? You can torque his jeans back down. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly. <laughs> Exactly Buttons got to be five yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, untorqued jeans, very dangerous. Um, all right, thanks for joining us, everybody. Remember, this is the podcast presented by Worldwide Cyclery, and they are awesome. They um, are. Knowledge sources, and they have a ton of parts. If they don't have something, let them know, and chances are they'll either talk to the brand or they'll figure out a solution to, to start carrying those things. Absolutely. If they're good products. If they're bad products and they know and they let you know, well, that part actually sucks and this one's better, trust them. They know what they're doing. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, with that, Steve. We'll talk to people next week. Have a nice day. Hey guys, Jonathan here. Just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro, it comes from Wave Riders Entertainment, my good friend Tommy Walter. Check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to. We'll talk to you next week.